Mandrake, do you recall what Clemenceau once said about war? Uh, no, I didn't think I knew that. No. He said war was too important to be left to the generals. When he said that, 50 years ago, he might have been right. But today, war is too important to be left to politicians. They have neither the time, the training, nor the inclination for strategic thought. I can no longer sit back and allow communist infiltration, communist indoctrination, communist subversion, and the international communist conspiracy to sap and impurify all of our precious bodily fluids. Welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio. And this is episode 32. Two. 32. I just like how I said that like a used car salesman. 32! Mm. Sounded like a real Jill Merriam. We ha- what's Ugh. Jill Merriam? I'm Jill Merriam. Oh, you don't, do you listen to radio ever? I do not. There's an actual... And maybe this isn't, this isn't so kind to her because... She's just doing her garbage little commercials, but there's a Twitter account called, like, Fuck Jill Miriam, because she always does this thing of, like, she's just constantly on the air, and it's like, oh, no, it's, you know, February, it's Valentine's Day, and mm-hmm. that means love in the air, and she does, like, things for, like, car commercials, mm-hmm. and it's, like, it's a surprising leap year, and it's, like, it's not surprising. You know it's going to be a leap well, yeah, year. yeah, leap years don't generally just sneak up on you. Yeah, it's like, oh, Jesus. Like, it just happens to be February 29th. What day is it? I thought it was March would, 1st. Wouldn't that be amazing, though, if just randomly, like... If everyone went to bed on the 28th and didn't know if it was going to be a leap year or not. and But how would you know? Someone would have to tell you. Yeah, like, before it would be randomly decided, like, you know, a town crier would, would call Like it. a lottery? Yeah. Uh, Shirley Jackson would, would decry <laughs> it. Um, but, you know, in modern technology, you just wake up and your cell phone would tell you. No, leap year. I'm like, oh, I guess it's leap year. I'm like, oh, is it March first? Nope. Nope. February twenty ninth. Oh man. You could have multiple, back to back, like three in a row. That'd be cool. Maybe not have one for like ten years. Mm-hmm. And then it just is there. And then what do you do? What do you do? I don't know. I would start. I think Mario by drinking a beer. Maybe yeah. uh, something I mean, from the shed that's brewery. What always, that's where I always. Do. Oh my goodness, that's a. Middlebury, That's a Vermont. Heavy brown ale. Yeah, seven point four percent. It's a rugged brown ale. It says a ruby colored brown ale. We won't steep know in Vermont because Lord. it is in the can. The can. Um, I got these. I'm from not too familiar with Shed. My parents' house. My brother got these for my dad in Vermont, and he drank one, and I took the rest because we've been dabbling in the browns. Nice. So I was just like, it fits what we're doing. Smells brown. This comes as a six pack or a four pack? Four pack. Like, I hope not a six pack. That'd be crazy. 
35 IBUs, so it's not too bitter. Yeah. Tastes good. It's okay. Yeah, it's definitely, it does have strength to it. You definitely do take that, taste that booziness. Browns, I don't think, are meant to be that strong. And you definitely do. Uh, there it is. Get, a whiskey taste there. Yeah. Like a, <clears throat> it is, that is, that is an accurate way to say it. It's got like a real grain mm. bill to it. Millet sort of flavor. It doesn't taste bad. No, it doesn't taste bad at all. Um, as we said, the new year, you know, the, uh, the season of, of 2019 is behind us. And we're starting to get announcements of new films that might be getting greenlit, mm. either for production to come out later in the year or uh, to come out, you know, next award seasons. A lot of times, though, you hear these movies in February and they're done by December. That was the case with 1917. I think 1917 was announced sometime in December and was It's probably more true year. of, like, the digital, the films that are shot on digital. Like, this Paul Thomas Anderson movie is shooting, I think, now. <coughs> um, but I get, I'm assuming he's shooting it on film again, and it's just going to take him a while to yeah. process it and stuff. But uh, we have two announcements of films uh, from Variety of two directors that both of us have a real favoritism for. Mm -hmm. um, one of them you really love, and I, I do also like, and one of them I really love, and you also like. Uh, the first is um, Martin McDonald film. It's currently untitled. He's going to be set about two friends on an Irish uh, isle who um, get into a little bit of a scuffle, and uh, you know it ends the friendship, and uh, things kind of tumble down from there. So it's currently untitled. Who's, is, do we know they, who's They don't it? know the cast yet. Huh. Um, but I, I, I kind of wouldn't be surprised if that is not a December or November release this hmm. year. Um, the other film is, uh, oh, it is The Banshees of Inisher, and it's going to be Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, Deadline just reported that a few hours ago. Wouldn't it be funny if it was just in Bruges but with a different title? Or the script to In Bruges but in Ireland somewhere? All of a sudden on a boat, like just... Ray Fiennes just kind of scrolls up. Yeah. It'd be just... Hey, guys, it's me. It's Ray Fiennes. <laughs> um, and the other one uh, is Claire Denis um, adapting uh, The Stars at Noon by Dennis Johnson. Not Denis Johnson. Yeah, that'd be, it could be. Claire Denis Maybe that's Johnson. Why. Yeah. Maybe that's um, why. With uh, Margaret Qualley and uh, returning to work again with Robert Pattinson. <clears throat> I haven't read The Stars at Noon. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm... I know a, you're a Dennis Johnson a, guy. As I say, I'm a Johnson guy. It's not my favorite one, only because, again, we've talked about this before. I'm not really... I, I have trouble with the African... With, like, colonialist literature. So I go well, this to... Is, this is Nicaraguan. It's, well, but it's like this... It's Nicaraguan, but it's, it's this, I think it's the same principle. It's like yeah. a, a, Nicar, a revolution in Nicaragua in 1984. Um... When I go to Johnson, I go for like the down, like the small scale kind of nitty gritty stuff. So you know, I'm obviously we talked about Jesus' Son on this podcast. I'm a I'm a super fan of Train Dreams. Um, Train Dreams. Did he is, do the one about the ER guy or the paramedic? In which one? Like the EMT. Like the short story. Yeah. Yeah, that's in Jesus' Son. All right, right. No, wait, no, I was thinking of a different one. It's like an actual book. Bringing out the dead. It's like emergency or something like that. It's called emergency. Well, he does have a short story called Emergency. In Jesus' son. Mm-hmm. 
I don't remember that being it's in the a, film. It's Jesus the Jack Christ Black one. one. Oh, okay. Does that the story is different than the film though? Uh, no, it's just the the guy with the the knife in his eye. How did I not connect those two when I saw Jesus' son? Mm. It's bizarre. Maybe it's because I read Jesus. Maybe because I read Emergency like in high school. Well, I, Emergency is kind of the one story. Actually, that's not true. Taking doing this MFA stuff has made me realize that like every I thought I was the only one that had read Jesus said which is a stupid thing to think but I just love that book so much. Well, you talk about how like you say it becomes yours, right? But that's now people talk about Emergency and they talk about the um, the hitchhiking story, the first story in the collection, um, all the time. And every kind of in every anthology I read, um, and then also Tree of Smoke. But that's Tree of Smoke is 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 her uh, Dennis Johnson's Vietnam book. which is also just fantastic. If you get an opportunity to listen to the audiobook, which is read by Will Patton, it is, it is a fucking trip. Friend of the podcast, Will Patton. <laughs> but that's, I mean, I'm excited for that. I'm glad she's doing some. I'm, I always worry with these directors. I don't know how you are that they're never going to make another movie. Like, I want to know what Lynn Ramsey is going to do next. You well, know Claire what I mean? Claire Denis is starting, like, starting to trickle up there in age. She's not too old yet. I think she's in her 60s. No, that's what I mean. No, she's, I think she's older than that. I don't think so. I think she might still be like mid sixties. I thought she was in her seventies. Nah, I I don't. Oh, she's seventy three actually. Here I am. So there you go. That's surprising to me. Because Chocolat is late eighties, so yeah, she's the best. Oh. Um, the good ones can do it for for longer. Well, worrying about uh, filmmakers that you that we like uh, not doing another film. Um, after back-to-back films that you particularly loved in uh, Call Me By Your Name and Suspiria. Oh, we yeah. didn't get anything last year, as, as, you, as one would want to believe. Uh, I feel like if you make Suspiria, you want to take some time off. Yeah, maybe maybe just a little <laughs> bit of time. Just at least to like clean off your clothes. You know, There's a lot of stickiness, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's probably got a lot of corn syrup on them. Um, but you do have time to work with uh, Versace. Uh, Valentino. Valentino. Valentino, right? Yeah. Sorry, Valentino, not Versace. That's, does, neither of those things really mean anything to me, unfortunately. Uh, this is Luco Guadagnino. Guadagnino's short film, The Staggering Girl. This is our dear friend Francesca Moretti. I have something I'd like to show you. I think your father, I think he'd go absolutely wild if he wore this. Why should we worry if she doesn't know what she's creating? Ich möchte eine Frau. This woman dresses the way you used to. Mommy, there's so much in life that I can't express. Uh, this is a uh, 37 minutes. It's currently playing exclusively on Mubi. Um, so which, you only have you only have 30 days probably to watch it. I yeah, assume. Um, it's Mubi's okay. That Mubi entire idea is it's okay. Goofy. It's you know the only reason I kind of I am aware of Mubi is that they did have Bo Travail on it for a while. And if you got the UK version of movie in the in the UK, you can watch Bo Travail now, which sucks. 
Why can't we watch Bojerville now? I mean, he can use a VPN. Yeah, but... If NordVPN wants to sponsor an episode, we can give out a, a code to people. Um, and they can watch Bojerville on Movie UK if yeah. they're Americans. Or if you're in the UK listening to us... You're just, you just like, oh, it's a movie. Yeah. Movie. Fuck. Where Fuck. movies go to be seen. To be movied. We're, yeah, where movies go. Um, I, it's funny. I Did you know this was existed? Uh, I had heard about it long, like back in con, mm-hmm. and then I just kind of forgot about it. Yeah, I just I, figured it was like going to be a long form commercial. I had no idea. Which it, I mean, which it, it is. is, it is, but it tends to. It tends I to was looking else. up uh, Ryuichi Sakamoto, <coughs> who did the score for this, to see if he had uh, any new music out available to, for me to listen to, and it just said, uh, you know, coming soon on his Twitter feed. It was like available to buy soon or whatever. The soundtrack to Luca Guadagnino's "The Staggering Girl," and I was like, "What the hell is that?" And then I looked it, and there was there it was, and exclusively on Mubi. Well, um, that's actually how you how you found it. That's actually how I discovered this thing. I was like, "Hey Mario, there's this. And Julian Moore's in it. And Kyle MacLachlan's in it. And Abby Rorock, Alba Rohrocker's in it. Who we like? Yeah, she is a pivotal film uh, Best Supporting Actress nominee. Yeah, exactly. For Happy as Lazaro. Um, so. You know, we can me- start saying that now. Yeah, two award shows, so we can start. I know we gotta get a seal nominees. made up so we can yeah. stick it on stuff. It's like well, you don't get a rotten tomato. You don't get a seal if you're just a nominee. Well, it's a, it's a big deal. It's not like an Oscar nomination. It'd be great if she, if, if she shows up in a movie and it like just shows up like pivotal film award nominee. That would be great. Florence Pugh's just like pivotal film award winner. Florence Pugh. That'd probably be the one she cares about. Maybe. Yeah, so... Maybe if she's dating Zach Braff, her standards are probably low. <laughs> well, he might be jealous. He might fly into a jealous rage because he's never getting one of those. <laughs> um, Just you wait. Yeah. No. I'm, I'm, I'm fairly confident. Um, so I guess... Garden the, State 2 is going to get all the nominations. It's just going to be saying, oh, we're so old and we still mm. listen to this shit so much. And then and that hole is... They filled it in. I don't know. The Nationals come to Westville, and I'm going to see them. Oh, are they? Yeah. They're playing the Westville Music Bowl? Mm-hmm. Where is that? The Tennis Center? It's the Tennis Center. Yeah. Okay. I was always... That's like the I worst that's name. Gonna, that's going to be a good show, I think. Who is it? Just the National? And who else? Uh, Sarah Van Patten. Oh, Sharon Van Etten? Yeah. Oh, I like her. I mean, I'm not going to that show, but I like her. I'm sad that she's <laughs> playing there and not somewhere that I'm actually going to go to. Yeah, that's an unfortunate name for a music venue. The Westville Music Bowl. <laughs> um, we should probably talk about the film. Let's, you know, okay. Um, so, from what I understand here, Julianne Moore is, uh, she's Francesca Moretti. She is the daughter of Sophia Moretti, who is a famous artist who is now blind. But she still is creating art with, and she lives in Italy, uh, with the help of Kyle McLaughlin? Who knew Francesca and had darker hair than he met her at a party? Right? Is yeah. that right? Yes. Um, and and Francesca wants her mother to move back to to New York with her, so she can take care of her. And then she's starting to fall into dementia. Yeah, and then um, they put on clothes. And they go to a field, and they dance. 
Well, I mean, there's there's definitely a unhinged narrative here, especially after one of the three Kyle McLaughlin characters. Um, I think it's was it Mateo, and it shows her that the image, mm-hmm. um, and then after that, the the narration and the storyline kind of unravels. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't because then you get the Kiki Lane character, yeah, just playing... is there. Playing her best, like Nicholas Rogue, don't look now. Sort of early on when she's wearing that kind of yellow Valentino, yeah, and kind of you know stumbles out into the uh, you know before Julianne Moore chases her. Mm-hmm. Did you not get reminded of like the the little girl in the red from Don't Look Now? Mm, I didn't when I was watching was, it, but no. The one thing I noticed about this film was like he, it felt like Guadagnino really tried to throw a ton of 1970s and 60, late 60s at the wall, especially like. Yeah visual stylist stylisms um like from the opening title cards being really reminiscent to like early woody allen to um the sort of like friedkin-esque city shots uh Mm. establishing leading into like jordan whiskey kind of ending uh with the people dancing and you know in the valentino you get a bit of that like darkovsky um brutalism in terms of the early apartment shots well you just have like a, the dark blues and then like yeah, a lot of nicholas, yeah, yeah. a lot of nicholas Rogue. <clears throat> but it's funny because it is it's he's abandoning some of the stuff that he used to do with like a bigger splash and even with call me by your name and he's like steering almost headlong into this kind of i don't know what you'd call it like well, sculpted surrealism i would call thing. this more just, um, I think, who was it? It was Carolyn Thigh in um, her playlist review of it that said there's an unruly aestheticism in it. And that, that really resounds for me. It's 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 trying to be, once again, Guadagnino kind of grappling with the jigsaw puzzle that is memory. She's a memoirist who's having trouble writing mm-hmm. her, her novel. Um I think it's David Elric who said, like, maybe because she's not, like, wearing sweats, but because she's, like, dressed in... She's always dresses. wearing some kind of Valentino <laughs> yeah. Couture outfit, maybe yeah. She's in Haute Couture. It's just like, maybe they get comfortable, then you can settle down. But, um, you know, when, you know, you get, you get uh, Kyle McLaughlin's one character, like, saying from, you know, the memory kind of moves from the concrete to the abstract. And what happens, especially after she sees that painting, that kind of, like, scattered image um, at the party. Uh, everything comes unhinged, and to me, it becomes like Guadagnino trying to do like a visual palette um, of, of memory and the fact that she's kind of super... So he superimposes a lot of what would have been, I would assume, kind of the time frame of the 1970s I get. Um, with like pop culture. You get like, uh, like Sakamoto's score really reminds me of like a goblin sort of score, like definitely coming after, right after the work with Suspiria, mm-hmm. being influenced by Goblin, maybe a little more synthy um, than that. And just as like I said, the visual palette of it is really similar to those directors, kind of like a mishmash. And then you have something like Kyle MacLachlan playing three different characters, kind of representing like she doesn't really remember what these guys looked like in the past. That's why I kind of got well, here's the, the thing, intention though. for it. But to me, it felt like there was an attempt to be very deliberate with that, an attempt to be very structured with like, oh, uh, this is how she's kind of reconstructing her past and trying to remember it herself and the fallibility of itself with memory. But it's so kind of coded in this lack of 
narrative structure um, that it, it, it falls apart. And that's not surprising when you have, you know, the writer of um, the current war and the giver writing your screenplay. <laughs> Michael Mitnick. Yeah. Um, well, it's funny, though, because I think it, it simultaneously... It, I think it does all those things. I think the memory thing is really clear because you have Mia Goth as like the young Sophia, which is not, um, which is interesting. She looks she looks different than Mia Goth usually yeah, does. This is, which this I, is actually a pretty decent. I think she's good. Mia yeah, Goth performance. But then they have a then Julianne Moore and Kyle MacLachlan have that conversation um, out in the yard, in in front of the shed about the paintings and how he's like trying to describe. The geese, or is it the geese or the swans to her? And so she's trying to paint, she's making a painting of swans and it ends up just being this red mess. But that, you know, he says the value keeps going up even though it doesn't really look like a swan. And he's, you know, he's like, I'm not doing a good job describing it to her, which really kind of resonated with me um, in a couple of different ways. But it's one of those things where, like, it almost. You know, so you went right to memory, and that's obviously it's clear because there's memory here. But then it kind of tries to undo the memory thing. Like, her wouldn't she just remember what a swan looks like? But she's also blind. So, like, even if she remembers what a swan looks like, her, like, hand doesn't have eyes. You know what I mean? Like, her hand can't see. She can't translate her memories into... Um, actual pictures she's not like she's like a pan's labyrinth monster (laughs) maybe she is maybe that's the whole point of the movie is that she is a pan's labyrinth monster and that's why julianne moore is all messed up um it's really kind of but it's 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 weirdly fascinating and like while simultaneously doesn't doesn't (laughs) doesn't really do anything or work um but i really i enjoyed watching it in the same way that I enjoyed watching, you know, the Jonathan Glazer short that we just watched, or the Paul Thomas Anderson videos for Tom York's Anima, or even like Lynn Ramsey's uh, Swimmer. Remember that one? Mm-hmm. Where it kind of so that came after um, we need to talk about Kevin and really kind of telegraphed where like her visual direction was going because there's a lot of stuff that she's doing with with water specifically and with with light. Well, there's, um, there's a lot of similarities in Swimmer to sort of the visual palette of a rat catcher. But not like – it is it is in metaphor. It is in symbolism, but not in what the, the image actually looks like. You know what I mean? Because rat catcher is just a grainy yeah, that, that's th- right. thing. But it in all of these movies, it's kind of – so this – again, this doesn't look – it has – you know um, – all right, ready? The cinematography is by Sayambu – Mook Deep Prom. I think I got that, right? Yeah. Um, who, you know, did Suspiria um, and did Call Me By Your Name, I believe. He did uh, also Uncle... Um, I can never remember. Uncle Boonmi. Boonmi. Yeah. Um, this is where Luca Guadagnino is now. This movie looks like Suspiria. I mean, in terms of, like, how he's framing Julianne Moore's face in, like, the color he's palette. He's also too. Oh, there you go. Um, in the color palette and stuff like that. He's moved. I find these shorts really illustrative of of where these directors are in their art. You know what I mean, and in which direction they're going. I'm very interested to see what this next Paul Thomas Anderson movie looks like because Phantom, because Inherent Vice and Phantom Thread and um, 
anima don't really even though they you can feel that they're Paul Thomas Anderson things and he's got his moves that he's doing and whatever they're also different things um and I think that's what this I think this signals whatever comes next is not going to be the lush colorful bigger splash things that he you know was in call me by your name stuff that he was known for it's going to be this kind of like you said, seventies Nicholas Rogue pastiche things where it's it's everything seems psychotically wrong or psychically wrong, and like the re, you know the Sakamoto score illustrates that as well. Um, I don't know. There's a weird. I, I found this incredibly boring, except for the fact that there's a weird undercurrent of madness running through this whole thing, which kind of made me want to keep watching it, even though I was like. All right. Yeah, I think, think I think when does seventy three minutes or when does thirty seven minutes come? No, and that's and that's one of the main criticisms I, I've heard of it, and something I would I would stand by is the fact that like narratively it's a mess, and I don't think that's necessarily a fault of Guadagnino. Um, I think it's just a fault of of a bad writer. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but from like an an aesthetic standpoint, um, and just you know all the composition of it from the way it's shot to, you know, the kind of overall sound design, that Sakamoto score, um, Sakamoto? Sakamoto. Sakamoto score, um, and, you know, just, just even the use of, of colors, um, not only in the production design, but also the way, you know, he has to use the Valentino mm-hmm. clothing. Yeah, But yeah. He, he balances it well to enhance the narrative. Like, that, that kept me in. Mm-hmm. And so the components that make Guadagnino kind of a spectacular filmmaker yes. are there. It's just unfortunately, he's not he working had, with a lot. He's yeah. I don't know what they're thinking. Like yeah, this guy can write the script. You literally Let's, just have to give them anything. You and you had they had thirty seven minutes to play with. You could have done a pretty significant real narrative. Um, untraditional for sure in thirty seven minutes. That made this all tie together somehow and make sense. Um, but it's just, they didn't do that. So now there's just, now there's just this. Yeah, it's, it's, I still argue that it's, it's worth a watch from, um, just from a component standpoint. Oh, yeah. Uh, it is not at all worth your time if you're looking for something that's narratively in- intriguing no i agree if you like any aspect of like what's happening here then i just <coughs> say, you know Ryuichi sakamoto luke guaragnino if you're just like a big julian i mean there's good some good julian more faces in here um kyle mclaughlin is i'm not sure what he's doing but um you know mia goth, is, mia goth yeah, like if you like Albert that Orchard stuff here doesn't get a lot to do but just but it's yeah she doesn't get a lot to do although she does get a, a bunch of dance time at the end she does but She's like the that's, a, that's the most that's mostly what she gets. She doesn't get anything else to do. Um, but yeah, if you like those parts, then you could do worse. If, if you're looking for something that has the narrative consistency um, measured with, you know, the visual and sound simulation of "Call Me by Your Name" mm-hmm. or the previous part of the Memory Trilogy, um, which I don't know why it's, those names are skipping. I'm forgetting those right now. Um, or you know, even kind of the. Um, Psychosis of Suspiria. Yeah, you're not gonna get that here. No, you're not, not gonna get that here. From it's not the gonna. Narrative. Yeah, from the narrative is not gonna do you're it. Although you'll feel be, it'll feel like it's there, but it's not gonna be. Uh, it's not gonna be upheld by the narrative at all. 
it's ultimately going to be kind of a struggle. Because that narrative stinks. <laughs> My favorite part about the sound design was, like, the voices that were coming through the vent. But, like, you don't know they're coming through the vent. And you also don't know whose voices they are. And you're just like, what the hell is... <laughs> What the hell is going on? Well, I had assumed that the voices belonged to um, Kiki Lane. But then they show the mother painting. And Kyle MacLachlan's holding, like, the brush out to her. It's just Because I kind of assumed that Kiki Lane kind of represented this structure of time. That's how I, that's how I got her character overall. She represented this kind of both passage of time mm. and, you know... Adulation of of present. I don't know, man. And I assume that's what the finale was trying to say was like, be in the present and also look at the entire spring 2018 line of the <laughs> Valentino collection. Very um, baggy, right? Yeah, yeah, a little baggy. Let's talk about. The, <laughs> let's have an in depth discussion. The about Kiki the Lane, that yellow like um, I don't want to say scarf, but overcoat she wears when mm-hmm. she kind of like has her back turned and goes down the elevator. I like that. I like um, Julianne Moore's outfit in that scene also. The like, high black pants yeah, and every, stuff like that. Like, I mostly enjoy the costume design outside of like the finale. Well, and Kyle McLaughlin's sweaters. Did Valentino make those sweaters, or are they just LL Bean? I don't know. Was it wasn't? Because I, I assumed it was the women's collection. It's it's possible. Who knows? Does Valentino do do women do men's clothing? I don't know. I don't know anything about fashion. All these pictures look like they're women. Or you know, are any of them wearing sweaters? I don't see any sweaters. I just see a lot of dresses. Hmm. Interesting. Does he make... I mean, I'm not seeing anything. We're going to start a band called the Valentino Sweaters. The Valentino... Oh, no. Valentino for... Very Valentino for men. Yeah. Can you... Where do you buy it? Like Target? <laughs> let's see. Let's see. <laughs> let's see. A Valentino men's sweater. Well, that's a bomber jacket. <laughs> How much is that? Let's see. Let's see. Let's see something that was probably a sweater from this. Oh, you know, it looks like you could get it for eight hundred and fifty dollars. Oh, that's not bad. It's all a crew neck here. I mean, like two. Some of them for like three hundred. Okay. But they're they're bad. They're the men's his men's clothing. Valentino's men's clothing is kind of garbo. Are we are we qualified to say that? Yeah. No, because I wouldn't wear it. <laughs> and I'm a. I identify as a man who enjoys man's clo- men's clothing. I don't enjoy men's clothing. And I wouldn't wear any of this shit. Well, I'm going to go to knitwear. Yeah, this stuff's guard ugly. Ugh. Valentino. I like your overcoats and, and some of your women's dresses, especially like the the formal wear. Feel free to send us some stuff, though. Yeah. You know what? Send it to Tom. I'm good. I won't even resell it. I, I'll burn it. I feel like we're we're. I think it's funny that we're courting like local beer sponsors, but Valentino, just stay away. And just, NordVPN, don't forget. Yeah, just stay and the Blue fuck Chew. away. Oh yeah, Blue Chew, Blue Chew beer and NordVPN. That's that's all you need. That's all you need. All right. I think anything else? No. Um. All you right. have you have twenty some days to see it if you're in America. Yeah, until it goes to YouTube, where I'm sure it also. No, I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure there's other ways of watching it. <laughs> but we do not suggest that you no steal. sign up for that free trial of yeah, movie. You get seven days, then you can cancel it, and you can watch all the movies you want. 
Yeah, you probably have. I mean, it's only thirty-one movies. You have time. Here's the thing about days. movie, though, and I've I've I have subscribed to a, a free trial before under a different email address. They send me lots of um, you know, advertisements on my email about like all these different movies. Just because a movie didn't come out on a this is advice for movie. Just because a movie didn't come out on a major studio, doesn't mean it's an all-time classic. I'm just telling everybody out there, okay. Just because it it didn't nobody saw it and it didn't make any money and it's in black and white and you know some actor that you kind of like but you know you don't really love is in it um, and it's seventy four minutes long and it's directed by a director you've never heard of doesn't mean it's one of the great unheard of movies ever. That is true. So just something to think about movie, something to think about. And now we've shot our movie ad possibilities, um, but oh, yeah. Well. <laughs> Hopefully what they'll can you do? they'll like our number uh, thirty-two discussions. We'll be we'll be right back. Welcome back. Okay, so I'm gonna do a little. Uh, I'm gonna Mario myself here a little bit. I'm gonna steal from your playbook. Do you remember Mario? What the what's the first Oscars you remember? Um. All the way through, or just kind of like the first one you remember being like actively engaged in. Nineteen ninety one. Nineteen ninety one. Okay, so that was. I remember bits the nineteen ninety one movies. Yeah, yeah. So nineteen so ninety two Oscars. Okay, so be, because of Silence of the Lambs, or because you were hoping Home Alone would would sweep, or um, why was I so uh, invested in the Academy Awards for ninety two? I, I think my mom was a huge lover of Silence of the Lambs. Um, I was very pro Beauty and the Beast, but I also liked Bugsy. You had seen, I, you had saw, you saw Bugsy. Yeah. I also liked Bugsy, but I wasn't like in favor of that winning. Mm-hmm. Um, I hadn't seen, no, but I also hated Prince of Tides. I remember that. Still hate Prince of Tides. Yeah. With good reason. And Thelma and Louise. That's fine. There was a lot of movies that year I hated. I did like Cape Fear. How do I see all, why did I see all these movies that young? Yeah, but the first Oscars I actually care about and deeply remember and deeply was invested in were the nineteen ninety five Oscars. Me too, Mario. And it was like the first one when all those things when like I had seen a bunch of movies. Um, you know, it's weird. Yeah, I'd seen four of the five by the time the Oscars had happened. I hadn't I seen think? like I hadn't seen Shawshank yet. I had seen Forrest Gump in theaters. But and again, not one of these things where like I've seen, seen them. Maybe I was just very aware of. Well, and that's how we're felt like I could have an opinion. And that's how we're going to get to my number thirty-two here. Is that like I had, for whatever reason, I didn't. I don't want to say it was like cloistered. You know, I had a cloistered childhood. I don't think I did, but like it wasn't going to see like movies in theaters was not like a super important thing when I was a kid. It became like more important like around this time. So by the time. Like, the 1995 Oscars had rolled around, so, like, in 94, I had seen Speed, I had seen Forrest Gump, and The Crow, and True Lies, and Dumb and Dumber, and The Mask, um, and I was a big Nine Inch Nails fan by that time, so I had, I knew what Natural Born Killers was, I had the soundtrack for Natural Born Killers. Had you seen The Client? I had not seen The Client. That's, that, that's something I would get to later in life, and really, and really enjoy. All those Brad Renfro. Well, I told you what the movie I was, like, vividly, like, supporting this year was right no quiz show oh yeah yeah yeah. i hadn't seen quiz show because i didn't care 
Um, Love Quiz Show. Have you, do you like Quiz Show? It's Can't fine. Remember. Okay. I'm, I, I Quiz Show just has a weird spot in my heart. I think it's a. I, it's not pivotal, but I think Quiz Show has inspired like weird spots on lots of people's hearts, and I think it might be for that exact same reason. Where it's, I actually think this is one of those years where there's a bunch of movies where everyone was. This is one of those years. Maybe everyone knew Forrest Gump was going to win. I don't know, or maybe everyone just assumed my number thirty-two was going to win because it was a fucking phenomenon. But I definitely had not seen my number thirty-two when the Oscars happened. But then the Oscars happened, and then I saw clips of number 32, and I was just like, that's what this movie is? Because by 1995, my dad was getting, you know, had been getting Rolling Stone delivered to the house. Me and my friends were trading spin magazines and stuff like that. I was aware of the culture um, beyond just, you know, Pearl Jam and Stone Temple Pilots and... Nirvana and Silverchair and all these other bands. Maybe that even it's too early for Silverchair. Um, but a, around <coughs> all the other bands that I kind of love. Silver Silverchair? Is that the one? Frog Stomp with Tomorrow and Israel's Son. Tomorrow is the one I, I keep thinking you, yeah. you were inspired by for your all your bands. Yeah, what's the, what are the lyrics? How's the lyric? Do, 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 do. But I like to see you live without it. You think you could keep on going, living that, like I'm telling it. you, that somewhat Burn, sounds nah, like nah, some nah. of... Like oh, the, I wish. The, I love that fucking record. That sing, your, your vocals do sound like the lead singer of Silverchair. The Fat Boy song. You're gonna wake to Fat Boy. Remember that one? Yeah. Oh, I love fucking Silverchair. Is, is, that, is, that is that a compliment to your, to your vocals? Sure. Someone okay. commented on... On Facebook, Twitter, for Andrew's, because he uses a, a, a discard artist song on his Mud Flood videos, um, <laughs> that uh, I sounded like Adam Duritz from Counting Crows. I'm not so sure about that one. I don't think that's true. No, I don't hear that. I don't think I don't hear that at all. But I'd say, uh, I'd say you're a better vocalist. Daniel Johns for a Silverchair record. That's that's a plus. I love I love that. <laughs> Record. Um, I do like. You know I don't know so, that record by like You know that. what's so funny is that I can actually tie that record. I can tie Israel's son, the first song off of that record. I could tie actually that whole record to this thing. Is that when I did see my number thirty-two, when I finally saw it, the thing that everyone was talking about. You know what I mean? The thing that like apparently resurrected John Travolta's career, which is as a not like an average moviegoer, I didn't give a shit about. Um, and Fred Durst killed. Yeah. <laughs> Um. Yeah. Do you think it, I think that that's it? Think that's the end? <laughs> um. That would be the first thing that Fred Durst is ruined. Um. Yeah, I think he also dated Thorbridge for a while, which explains like where that where that went. John Travolta or Fred Durst? Fred Durst. Oh, okay. Um, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that happened. Um. When I finally saw my number 92 in the same way that, like, when I first heard Israel's son, I think a year later, I think Frog Snap was 96. Um, if we can get a producer um, to check that out for me while, while I'm talking. Um, I felt like I had seen... They did. Yeah, okay. There you go. Um, thanks a lot, Fredgers. I thought I had seen something that I shouldn't have seen. And not that I was, like... So it was like wasn't so it wasn't like seeing the Serbian film, you know what I mean? You know when you see the Serbian film, you're just like definitely shouldn't have watched that. Haven't seen it. Okay, so what would be one of those movies where you're just like, I should have given that a miss? Maybe like Salo. 
Yeah. But like it's it's a great movie, but maybe say though. Yeah, sweet movie is kind of like that for me too. I'm just like, eh, I didn't need that. I don't think I needed that at all. Or he, I, I found the first Human Centipede very, very hard. The second, the first one is so bad. The second was, but the first one was novel. Mm, and so, like, the meanness of the second one didn't really do anything because it was like, this is stupid. I saw the second one first. So oh, okay. Um, but in 1995, or whenever I saw this movie, I, it was, I'm pretty sure it was later in 95 on video, um, I was, like, not traumatized, but I was affected in... Both, I think, content, but also quality. As of 1995, <clears throat> again, because I got to like Reservoir Dogs and Clerks and stuff later, like after this, you know what I mean? I went backwards a little bit a couple of years later and started doing all that stuff. Um, I had no, there was no frame of reference in my history for this movie, like at all. Um, which I think is true for a lot of people. Which I think is true of like the movie in general and the movie culture in general. Which is why it was what it was. Um, we've already talked about this movie a little bit on your list. Um, my number 32 is Quentin Tarantino's 1994 movie Pulp Fiction. Come on, let's get in character. I'm so interested in big man's wife. Well, he's going out of town in Florida, and he asked me if I'd take care of him while he's gone. Take care of him? No, man. Just show up a good time, make sure she don't get lonely. I'm not uh, 100% sure what actually happens in that portion of the trailer. These trailers were weird. There's a lot of weird Pulp Fiction trailers, which is weird because there's a lot of um, good lines that they could have ended a, a trailer with. You know, sections of a trailer, but it's not. It's just like one long run on of sound and, and people talking. So it was unfortunate. Uh, it's hard to edit. Um, Be better, uh, 94. Yeah, do a better job. Um, I'm not sure what I can add to the discourse surrounding Pulp Fiction that hasn't already been said by everybody and their mother. I think, you know, from a. I think this stuff stands, stems from a personal standpoint at this point. Um, I, you know, there's the Jules and Vincent thing in the beginning. There's all, like, the classic conversations. Um, For me, though, there's two moments in this movie that I always go back to and that always thrill me every single time I watch them. One, the first one, I think, is fairly obvious. And if you've kind of been following around, like, how my childhood trajectory (laughs) was, um, probably why it was... um, it's so thrilling and so kind of shocking is is the gimp scene um i didn't see i didn't i didn't know that gimp was going to come out of that box mario and it really like messed me it really like messed me up i had no concept of at that age and maybe i should have maybe i should have known what a gimp was at 13 did you know what a gimp was at 13 yeah because you had seen Pulp Fiction when you were younger. Yeah, and also the internet. How old were you when... How, what year was you 13 in? Uh, that would have been 99, 2000. Mm. Yeah, I didn't get the internet at home. I mean, I think I had the internet then, but... I had a web TV. Oh, really? 
At 99,000? I think I did. What did that do? What? Did it have to dial up? Yeah, it was a dial up. When oh, did web, when, I was like one of the first people to get web TV. I got, bring out web TV early. Yeah, they got, started in uh, 95. I think we got ours in like 97, 96. Wow. Okay. Good for seen, you, Mario. I'd seen a lot of porn by 97. I don't think we got our first gateway computer until like 97, watching 98. The picture, watching the, the porn pictures load. Waiting there for like three minutes, and you're and you're always just like, this is fine for my computer. This is totally fine. It was Web TV, so it was just that it was an internet portal. It didn't save. It couldn't save anything. Um, but I didn't know what a GIMP was, and it it freaked me out. I was like, this guy lives in a fucking box. He lives in a box. What does he do? What is a GIMP supposed to do? And then I found out later that he's you know for, you know, sex stuff. Um, Typically, gimps don't don't live in boxes, though. That one does. In a cage inside a box. He opened, like, three different tops. Um, I think the beauty of that scene, if I had to break it down, is the fact that the way that it escalates. And everything in it keeps escalating and escalating and escalating. So there's, you know, there's random... There's violence in the fact that Bruce Willis, um, as Butch... Hits Marcellus with his car. Ving Rames with his car. <coughs> and then there's Kathy Griffin, which is a violence on another level. Maybe not maybe not in 1994, but it is today. Um, then Marcellus shoots a, shoots a pedestrian that's just trying to help Bruce Willis put ice on his face. <laughs> he just shoots her in the leg. And then he chases him down the street and he chases him to this pawn shop and Bruce Willis gets him on the floor and he's about to blow his head off and then um, they, then they have a shotgun pointed at them and they're, and they're told to go down, you know, they're, he hits him in the face and they're downstairs and then they wake up and they've got these balls in their mouth and blood is covering them and, and then he calls up Zed and then Peter Green is just there. Yeah. Peter Green just shows up out of nowhere. Let me just say, when I first saw this movie... I was super excited. Like, none of these people made much difference to me until Peter Green showed up. Because I had loved The Mask, and I had loved Judgment Night. Yeah, Judgment Night Peter Green had played Dennis Leary's second in command. And I was so excited as a kid when Peter Green showed up. And he showed up. He showed up. I still get excited. Like, when I saw Queen Shaven, and I saw Peter Green was in it, I got excited. Mm -hmm. I thought he was dead, too. Not dead? I thought he was the guy that committed suicide, but that was the villain from... um, um, Dumb and Dumber. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which is not Peter Green, but he looks a little like Peter Green. Yeah. Um, but Peter Green, still kicking. You know what the thing... I, and then He needs a resurgence. You know how it escalates even more, Mario? You know what always does it for me? Not just the, <laughs> the looks on Butch and Marcellus' faces, when they kind of... Especially Bruce Willis's face. And Bruce Willis's face is great because it ties exactly into the face that he makes when he realizes that Vincent Vega's in the bathroom. You know, when he gets that Bruce Willis eyes and they're all wide and he looks fucking crazy. He makes that face with a ball in his mouth with his face all bloody. Well, Peter Green, and here comes the escalation, wraps his fingers on the head of the gimp. And it, you can hear it. Like the, the leather. Yeah. And I was like, oh my god. <laughs> it, like, Pulp Fiction is such like a sensual movie. You know what I mean? Like everything looks... Everything looks real and it feels real and it's it's like this little slice of reality that you didn't know 
Like, you just assumed, after watching this movie, you're just like, this must happen in L.A. every day. Yeah, surprising thing I noticed when I rewatched this was, like, I wasn't, these last couple times, is is the sound design really carries in that movie. Yeah. Like, the cinematography isn't, it's not It's not like an impressive-looking film. But it, but it really, a, I mean, it really works yeah. a lot. Yeah, it's 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 a workman like. But it's um, do what it's like what it needs to do. The Every shot is perfect. The combination of Menke, who basically brained Crazy. Tarantino in, Crazy. Yeah. and that sound crew mm-hmm. is just fantastic. Unbelievable. So, yeah, yeah. Um, rest in peace, Sally Menke. And that's and it's funny watching this movie. That's what I thought too. I was like, this is this movie is edited perfectly. Like those lines and those shots, like just create this perfect kind of barrage of like witticism um, that makes it seem profound, even if it's not always hyper profound in a way that uh, like Reservoir Dogs kind of didn't, but that I don't think that's a editing thing as much as like a writing thing. Mm. Um, so then there's, there's the further escalation, you know what I mean? Cause then he leaves the gimp and he gets, you know, the slow motion, he gets out of the ropes and then he goes upstairs and there's the classic scene where he tries out a bunch of different weapons and he sees the samurai sword and, and he's Quentin Tarantino's integrating his interests in a way that he's actually hasn't been able to do since he made um, uh, Pulp Fiction. So I don't know. I couldn't think of it. Um, you know what I mean? Where they're not like just like this is a samurai movie. He's like integrating the ideas of the samurai movie into a movie that's not about being a samurai in the way that like he couldn't really do with Kill Bill because that movie is about just doing that stuff. So he's making a samurai movie that is a samurai movie. This one has takes it takes all the elements and he combines them in. He goes downstairs and he, and he and he and he just slashes some people and then you know Marcellus gets out and he shoots that you know he shoots Peter Green in the balls and then and the violence gets escalated even more. But then it's like the violence of language. You know I'm gonna get some hard hitting motherfuckers to come at you with some pipes. Some, or some hard pipe-hitting motherfuckers or whatever. And he's like, going to get him go medieval on your ass, which is like the first time you'd ever heard something like that. It's just beautiful. It's like this beautiful poetry coming out of being... And then, he, you know, um, you know, I'm pretty fucking far from all right. Um, all that stuff, it's just, just, it's just pure poetry. And it's brilliant, and it's violent, and it's, it feels um, like revelatory. And then there's the other moment for me that always fucking gets me. And I think it's because of what Quentin Tarantino is now. I mean, I watch Pulp Fiction pretty regularly. Do you watch Pulp Fiction pretty regularly? Uh, it's one of those movies that I always kind of come back to. We've talked about that. It's yeah. just something I, I intellectually appreciate. And from a writing standpoint, it's a great entry. Not a great entry point. Like I say, Reservoir Dogs is that better entry point when you're younger but Pulp Fiction is kind of the more nuanced well Pulp Fiction's um, good and Reservoir Dogs is stinks <laughs> but this is where we're going is that there's the diner scene like the last diner scene when they're they're sitting there having their breakfast and they're talking about eating the bacon right and this is like classic Quentin Tarantino dialogue here at nine movies later this is what <clears throat> Quentin Tarantino dialogue is it's about it has nothing to do with what you're What's actually happening in the movie? You know what I mean? They just shot Marvin in the face. They just met Winston Wolf. Um, you know they're they've taken the car to the to the the 
salvage yard and it's going to get crushed up with the body inside and all this other stuff and they're just sitting there having breakfast and they're having this conversation about like whether or not pigs are clean you know what i mean and like what would you eat a dog is a dog a filthy animal it's like i wouldn't exactly call him filthy but he's definitely not clean and that would have to be some charming that would have to be one charming motherfucking pig blah blah blah. and he's and they both laugh and then vincent says like oh you're good you know you're lighting it up and he's you know john travolta is amazing in this movie in a way that it seems weird to think about because like all of John Travolta's most John Travolta things um, or like the most quintessential John Travolta things are not like this movie. This is an, a weird oddity and it would have been nice for him to win that Oscar instead of like Tom Hanks for Forrest Gump. Um, and then the movie spins back into what we just saw. You know what I mean? Before even they shot Marvin in the face. You know what I mean? With the miracle. Um, And it's something that Quentin Tarantino didn't do with Reservoir Dogs. And I don't think he's actually been able to do since. Which is transition. I think... And one of the reasons I I really like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood so much is I think he got a little better at those transitions. I think he had been writing himself into corners... For a long, long time. And we talk a lot about... we, You and me over the, at the bar have talked a lot about um, the scene in Inglorious Bastards in the um, the pub. You know what I mean? In the basement bar. where With the three and all that other shit. I hate that scene. I hate it. Because it seems like it wants to end like a hundred times. And it just keeps going and going and yeah, going. Yeah, it's painfully over in. Oh, my God. And I've I've made this... Maybe I've not made this comment to you, but I've made it to um, JP, is that I'm a big Pearl Jam fan. And one of the problems that I've had with Pearl Jam re- recently, and I don't know if this, you know, is going to say something about me to anyone that's listening that like, I like Pearl Jam, whatever. One of the things that I've had a problem with them recently in terms of um, their last couple of albums is that they seem to just write songs with like seven parts because they don't know how to get out of any one part. So they just do each part one time in a row and then once they do each part twice, that's the end of the song. And it feels like Quentin Tarantino had kind of gotten himself into this thing where he's just like kept writing and writing and writing and writing and writing. And then you would, and he just kept getting cleverer and more, you know, clever or, or more clever. Um, and he wasn't really doing anything, you know what I mean? I feel like you had a lot of this stuff with Kill Bill, too. A lot of those David Carradine speeches, especially at the end of the movie, don't seem like don't seem like they're carrying any weight. It seems like they're just delivering dialogue. Yeah, which is like it's just the, good the reason, dialogue, but it's not like doing anything. And I think the reason maybe Kill Bill works better, at least for me, is like Carradine's able to carry like the floweriness of that. Yeah, and, well, uh, and it's, and it's, it's you know, mood and atmosphere. Michael Fassbender wasn't. Yeah, well, that's... I mean, I like Michael Fassbender, but that's that. I that no, drives me fucking he's, nuts. He's a better actor when he's kind of like being very blunt and to the point. Um, but that's the way that it twists back. I mean, and I'm going to put that on Tarantino. Amazing script. I'm going to put that on also Samuel L. Jackson, who got fucking robbed by stupid Martin Landau. Um, Not an Ed Wood guy. I mean, I love Ed Wood, but like. We can't really compare Martin Landau's performance in Ed Wood to, I mean, it's iconic. Yeah, you know that's, I mean, that's just Jules a, is like an icon. Um, <coughs> not Chaz Palminteri. No, 
Definitely not Chaz Palminteri. Me and Mar, me and JP were talking about this thing. So apparently, one of the things that I really like doing just to make myself angry. You know, you know how sometimes it's fun to be angry about stupid. You just stuff? watch Bronx Tale. No, I look at Mike Francesa's Twitter feed to see what weirdo like I'm not a Republican Republican thing he had to say, and JP was saying that, you know, and Mike Francesa really loved Green Book, and he was saying that Mike Francesa actually had a vote for the Oscars or the SAGs. And he thinks he was sponsored by, like, Chaz Palminteri. Because he used to call Mike and the Mad Dog show all the time. And I was just like, fucking Chaz Palminteri. Mind your own business, Chaz Palminteri. Um, but, yeah, it's just it's this beautiful transition, you know what I mean, into what sounds like nothing dialogue, which becomes the foundation for this unbe- one of the most unbelievable passages of... of of dialogue in, in film. You know what I mean? You know, what you mean, walk the earth. Um, it's just, it's, it's just fantastic. And that's, that's the kind of, you don't have that stuff anymore in movies. Everything in Pulp Fiction is iconic. You know what I mean? All the outfits are iconic. Bruce Willis's suede jacket with t-shirt and jeans is, is iconic. You know what I mean? They're stupid dork outfits that they put on after they get hosed down in the yard by Harvey Keitel are iconic. You know what I mean? Harvey Keitel's suit is iconic. Amanda Plummer's dress is iconic. Um, every, I mean, we did, We haven't mentioned Uma Thurman at all, but I'm not 100% sure there's like a lot to say about that stuff anymore. But it's just, it's become this other thing. And I think the only reason I, I don't think it's higher is because it's, it is because of that iconic status. Like it's never going to belong to me. Ever. It's just, it was part of the culture. I saw it because it was part of the culture. And I needed to be aware of, like, what the culture was, like, so aware of. You know what I mean? Mm. So it's not, but it's every time I watch it now, and now I'm not shocked by it. Now I just find it, now I just think it's awesome. Now I just think every everything that happens in it is fucking cool. Where was this um, in terms of viewing sequential filmmaking? Like present presentation of sequential storytelling. Oh, so that's a thing. That's another part of it too. And I wasn't sure if we talked about that on yours, um, in terms of like the writing and stuff like that. Yeah, really I had never confronted a movie like this before. Like that was structured in that way that you kind of had to piece together where everything was and what was the what the timeline was. But Roger Ebert makes this point in his great movies essay about how um the events are out of order, but the dialogue is never out of order. Um and I I find that really fascinating as well that like he's been able to kind of unsequence these events, but match them up kind of like a mixtape in terms of like theme and and content, um, and what each scene means to the next scene and what each scene does in terms of building up momentum for that ultimate last scene. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I but I don't know if I was like super aware of movie structure when I watched this. That's probably why it blew my mind. Did you have like? Were you super aware of that as well, or was it? Like I was a, aware of it, it, just didn't make his. I was more. I was impressed by it, but I wasn't as affected by it because I think that's because it's so seamless um, that it doesn't become something that is because it's noticeable in Reservoir Dogs. Kind of watching this nearly back to back, you know. Yeah, yeah. Like separated by a few weeks, but um, it's funny that's happening again with the other movie. Yeah. <laughs> so. um, you know, that's much more noticeable and, and deliberate, mm-hmm. and and that's kind of. 
imperfect. Mm-hmm. Whereas this, it's like you said, the dialogue and kind of the natural flow of the story and the ebb and flow of the narrative, which is not necess- which is not just a hallmark of, of how solid of a screenplay it is, but just Sally Minke's, because he, he's, he's done this since then. Right. And flubbed it now. Like I don't, like I said, besides Django Unchained, I think everything since she's died has been a failure, like an abject <clears throat> failure for me. Um, like bad. I think all. What was his, the last movie she did? Uh, last movie she would have done. Was it Inglorious? Would have been Inglorious. Yeah, I because think. she died in 2010. Yeah, I thought Inglorious was bad too, but um. But I didn't think that. I was think Inglorious is bad, it... not in spite of its editing. Right. I think Inglorious is bad because I don't respond to well, it's funny revisionist this... abject like extreme revisionist history that doesn't serve any point besides adolescent wish fulfillment well i don't even I, that's funny because which is what that film screams of i never go to the history part of it because th- that stuff doesn't really bother me what bothers me is the parts that like christoph waltz is not in like all the parts where christoph waltz is is out of the movie um yeah, I just find really I feel like inauthentic and performance just, and well, just BJ Nodeback performance. Yeah, I just it just seems overdone to the point of like a pseudo satire, and it's becomes a not it becomes not a satire anymore. It becomes nothing. Yeah, and those moments that are kind of more refrained and controlled feel better. I guess as it were. Well, I just um, think it's that, 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 and I think that's to a degree of. The juxtaposition the between those Christoph Waltz scenes <clears throat> and everything else is stark, to the point where it it really detracts from like the rest of the movie. How can everything be funny, but everything else be funny except for the two Christoph Walt, the two great Christoph Waltz speeches, and that bar scene, which isn't, which isn't tense because it just seems so labored. Yeah, and. No, no, Django Unchained I think is good in spite of its editing. I just think I love Django until the end. I was all I was. I think Django, I was all Django in falls Django. off the fucking rails after um, Christoph Waltz and DiCaprio die. You can't do that. Um, and then you know, Hateful Eight and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I think, are fucking not good. I just don't think they're good movies. That guy also did uh, the editor that would take over Fred Raskin. Did the editing for Bone Tomahawk. I didn't know that. Hmm. Um. But yeah, so I respond. I didn't really notice it as much. I just thought it was kind of a natural flow. Um. The other thing I have to ask, and watching this, it's always something I found curious, and I don't think it's sort of, um, I don't think it's intentional with Quentin Tarantino being cast as Jimmy, because Steve Buscemi was originally supposed to play this role, but he Mm. couldn't. What's up with the Jimmy character? Like, why is he so able to kind of, like, demean and talk down to these two characters? I've always, it's always been a, I've always kind of, like, looked for the answer to that. Like, he, he very throws out a hard R quite consistently there. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't seem like something that would stand for Vincent and Jules at that point. And well, they, considering they are, he, Vincent comes down on Winston Wolf for being rude. Yeah. And, like, Jimmy just yelled at him. Yeah. What's, what's going on with this, this character? I don't know. Um, I feel like it's probably one of those things where... Maybe a little more back, like not a, like a lot more backstory, but like I thought, like a fraction of a bit more backstory in terms of like how done Jimmy was with this life. You know what I mean? And then maybe a better actor can convey that in 
like the reading of those <laughs> lines. So where like, you know, did you see a sign that said dead N-word storage? Yeah. You know what I mean? Becomes not just like a cool thing to say, but really has some pathos. Like I was finished. Or the distance between where they were and where they occup- where they live and like where Jimmy is. You know what and I mean? And also, it also to, yeah, it, to me uh, establishes this kind of very quietly this 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 world this lived in world and i think like pulp i think this is the big problem i have with his later films mm-hmm. like once upon a time in hollywood doesn't feel like a real world to me it just feels like modern day hollywood got good production design and they they shot this movie this feels like a very lived in world of its own mm-hmm. and jimmy to me like i think like just rewatching this and this is something i hadn't noticed last time and it's something i kind of been like Noticing more is there's like a lot of a backstory to some of these characters, you know, going from, you know, Jimmy to like even like like Eric Stoltz, Lance or um, Marvin. Yeah. They feel that they have a lot going for them. Yeah. A lot of a lot of they have their own films somewhere. Maybe maybe not so much Marvin, but, you know, Lance and Jimmy have their own movies and Winston Duke <clears throat> Winston have their own. Um, is it Winston Duke? I can't remember. Why am I not remembering his last name? Winston Wolf, sorry. Winston Winston Duke. That'd be awesome if Winston Duke was this. <laughs> uh, went to, like, have their own films, you yeah, know? Have yeah, their yeah. own stories there. Well, I wanted and, to eat a big Kahuna burger. Yeah. And, and um, you know, you just get a very small glimpse of that. You know, you, you get that, that very tip of the iceberg sort of thing and that adds so much to the film yeah um well that's funny because i it was i think that's what makes it such a such a, a standard bearer for repeat viewings is that yeah. people kind of like kind of want to look in kind of want to there's not you know not hypotheses and, and theories about it i mean there probably is but they're mm-hmm. bullshit but just like it it, it it spurns creativity well here's what i would say is that when i watch pulp fiction i um it's fun because it's so fun is not the first thing I go to. I'm a, I'm amazed by it. I, I find it to be transcendent filmmaking. I think it's, um, it's, it's iconic. You know what I mean? It's all the things I've already said about it. When I watch once upon a time in Hollywood, I have a good time. I had a good time watching once upon a time in Hollywood. I didn't at once at one at any point find it transcendent, except for maybe some Leonardo DiCaprio acting scenes. You know what I mean? Um, but in terms of like the filmmaking or the script writing or the editing or definitely not the cinematography, um, I never said to myself like, holy shit, I'm seeing something totally new here. Uh, or I'm seeing something that transcends aspects of film that I've, I've – or that redefines certain things about film that I've kind of been holding true for myself or just like about film or whatever – Pulp Fiction 100% does that. You know what I mean? It's t- and each time I watch it, it reconfirms how I feel about it. Um, and that's the difference, I think, between the later movies in Pulp... Or the later movies in Pulp Fiction. I think Kill Bill is a really interesting middle ground because Kill Bill strikes me as the most... Um, I don't know. All the things that he's been trying to do for the last... 15 years, he did them better in Kill Bill. Like, the integration of... of Kill Bill, to me, feels like... It's it's not as... as when I, and I don't know if this point you're going for. It's not as well done of a story, but 
all the pieces that he's kind of like compiled. It feels like um, an encyclopedia on, on the film knowledge he's kind of grown. But I would say that he is it is filmmaking expertise. Yeah, no, exactly. That's what I'm trying to say. Right. Like, may, maybe not story expertise. I think Pulp Fiction is a better standard. Than yeah, that. yeah, yeah. But it's has a filmmaker, has a director, has block in terms of blocking in terms How, of yeah, getting exactly. really solid performances. How's this finding finding a way to make Daryl Hannah one of the more interesting villains? Putting it's. In terms of putting something on film, it's hard to rival Kill Bill. Like, actual film stock. You know what I mean? What that movie fucking looks like. It is. It runs the gamut from, you know, the animation stuff to all the stylized stuff and, like, everything he's doing. Pulp Fiction's everything. Pulp Fiction kind of does it all. It It is not changing the world from a visual standpoint, but... Every visual in there, every cut, every camera angle seems to be conveying something. It seems to be in the service of what, when the movie ends, is an overall picture of of what these people's lives are. And they're, it's totally believable. It's totally lived in. It's, um, it's a fucking experience. And it's not just fun. It is something else, which is when you're making a list of your pivotal films. And I feel like we're talking about this a lot recently. I don't know if you've noticed this, but as we get closer to like the number one, we're just kind of like talking about like the movies that really mean a lot to us. Um, that's what you're looking for in a movie. You're not just looking for like, that movie was a good time. Um, that was a good, fun way to spend two and a half hours. You know what I mean? You're looking for those movies that kind of were just like, holy shit. Like that re that seemed to rejigger your brain somehow. Um, yeah. My number thirty-two. What uh, what number was it of yours again? Uh, actually, uh, I'm gonna link to it. Eighty-four. I want to say eighty-four. Okay, so when I put it up, I'll I'll like put like a link to. Yeah, it's, I it's should more... actually probably start doing that. Like as like, they cross yeah. over, be like maybe I should recut <coughs> them and put them together. I should do that. I have all those raw data. Yeah, because I have nothing to do. <laughs> I have nothing to do. All right, we'll be right back with Mario's thirty-two. Spring of 2003 was a kind of interesting time to grow from adolescence slowly into adulthood. I wasn't yet an adult. I was still like 16. Um, you know, beyond kind of those immutable questions that kind of permeate maturity, um, like burgeoning sexuality and identity, uh, the world was kind of really fleeting in a time of like fleetingness and, and doubt. Um, shock and awe had just seized headlines and the world still grappled with its post-night uh, September 11th existence. Uh, so, like, combined with those usual contemplations I had as a teenager also came this kind of, like, searing sense of existential uncertainty and moral volatility. Um, as we've come to know uh, from the reason that we're sitting here <laughs> having drink, maybe too much beer in 70-plus uh, episodes. Um, well, yeah, we're just running out of beers. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I, I, I don't think so. I think I think there's... I think that. there's almost innumerable amounts of beers. I know. I think they make more beers. They definitely make more beers than we make episodes. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Especially now that we're only drinking one beer an episode. Remember the early episodes when we were drinking like two beers? We should do that for 25 through one. Just go fucking nuts. Um, but I, I didn't seek the answer like in my peers or like my flesh and blood mentors. But, you know, I looked at film and literature. Um, this was still kind of in my film infant infancy. 
Um, as I said, like in episode 35 with Reservoir Dogs. So I was introducing myself to those films that kind of stood as the titans mm-hmm. of their era. And uh, this film uh, really reverberated with me just for its time. Um, it is a sure nuclear destruction ballad. Uh, we'll all go together when we go. Satirist Tom Lura muses, and we will all bake together when we bake. There'll be nobody present at the wake with complete participation in the grand, in that grand incineration, nearly three billion hunks of well-done steak. I love it. Uh, I recently only discovered Tom Lurer and his songs in my research of this episode, but they candidly underscore how my film at 32 made me feel at the time. Uh, with the looming certainty of like the Iraq war kind of in that spring, um, the war that would probably be a little more taxing than any of us thought it would be. Yeah. Well, I think we thought it was going to be a little bit. I think in our president included thought it was going to be a good time. Just a good, just a good, like, you know, Gulf War two. Good for some photo ops. A couple stuff. years. Mission yeah. accomplished. I mean, he could do God's photo op on that, that ship. Um, this Cold War satire kind of helped to externalize that motions I was feeling. Well, I wasn't able to express them, you know, the, the outrage, the futility. I felt that the, how asinine um, the world felt that was compelled to do retribution and gamesmanship. Um, that you couldn't even begin to, like, question yeah. our necessity for invading Iraq. I remember back then I was like, what the fuck are we doing? Like, we're going a little, this seems a little... Uh, Little, it seems like Iraq wasn't really involved. And we're just kind of guessing they maybe had weapons of mass destruction. Yeah. If only there was a presidential candidate who uh, didn't vote for the Iraq war at the time. Um, <laughs> Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> because uh, he was 11. <laughs> How old would he have been? Would he have been 11? No, he would have been eight, 18. In 19. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he wouldn't have been 11. That would be young. I know. He's my age. <laughs> um, I was thinking 1990. Uh, so much like my number 33 in this creator's leader full metal jacket this film kind of demanded the attention to the toxicity of war and destruction the fallibility of combining power and sexual identity with human lives but uh did not so with the kind of glacial landing pacing um that would plague jacket's second half and basically the entire director's later filmography which is a point we'll get to uh because this is so you're the last time the i talk- pacing on this is good mm-hmm. um Instead, it was kind of forbearing and overwhelming, kind of filmed with William Rose and Blake Edwards-esque Cerberus humor. Um, it didn't accidentally elevate the targets of its iron ridicule like I felt Jacket does, especially in that second half where you kind of like sit there and try to do this Connors, um, Conrad-esque sort of contemplation on people. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it emasculated their kind of infantile and monstrous behavior. It was, in so many words, the language a 16-year-old boy needed to express his horror at the world rupturing around him. At 52, Stanley Kubrick's 1964 Dr. Strangelove, or how you learn to stop worrying and love the bomb. Blast off! Where's my shorts? Where's the bathroom? Buck, should I get it? On the hotline. Dr. Strangelove. Or, how I learned to stop worrying and... Love the bomb. A moving <laughs> picture. I shouldn't tell you this, man, Drake, but you're a good officer and you have a right to know. It looks like we're in a shooting war. Oh, hell. All the Russians involved, sir. 
Well, boys, I reckon this is it. Nuclear combat toe-to-toe with the Ruskies. I don't like the look of this, Fred. It's another movie where there's no good trailers. Yeah, it's kind of sinner going, that, that's the trailer? Well, because the trailers are all, like, images, and then there's new trailers, and, like, who's, like, you know, advertisements for DVDs and stuff like that? It's like, who wants that? So, based on Peter George's originally titled Two Hours to Doom, which was later called Red Alert, Two Hours to Doom is so much better of a title. Than Dr. Strangelove? No, than uh, Red Alert. Oh, yeah. Two Hours to Doom sounds fucking awesome. Uh, Dr. Strangelove is the film uh, of a rogue U.S. Brigadier General, Jack D. Ripper, um, who has uh, command of a base um, and bombers with hydrogen bombs. Uh, He uses an order to put the base on alert and also issues Wing Attack Plan R. Mm. Um to command one such aircraft, uh, you know, under the command of, of the the great Major Kong, performed by Slim Pickens, Pickens. who uh, reportedly did not realize it was a comedy. No, no, no. Much he, of the the film, he yeah. thought it was a it was, it was a straight film. Um, when they, Peter Sellers was going to play that role too, right? But he couldn't get the accent down. Yeah, he could get the accent down, and he suffered an ankle injury, which made it so he couldn't actually navigate the um, plane, the B-52's set. Oh, okay. So that was the major reason. Oh, interesting. Um, it, was, it was actually, the fact that he had to play the four roles was a order um, set by Columbia. Like, Columbia had seen his performance in Lolita, Pierre Seller's performance in Lolita, yeah. and loved it so much. So, like, the only way we're going to make this kind of pinko movie um, is... Uh, that's that's what the guy from Bonanza, the Haas, Haas, yeah, from Bonanza turned it down because he's like, I'm not gonna be in some fucking pinko movie. What was he gonna play? He was he was one of the ones suggested to play. Oh, it's Slim Pickens. King. Um, and John Wayne was originally also selected. But that Slim Pickens awesome. turned it down immediately. But uh, he had to play four roles, and that was the only way that Columbia was gonna finance it. Terrific! It's a great. Idea. <laughs> um, <laughs> they are ordered by Jack the Ripper to bomb a target in Russia and they are told to set their communications only to the CRM 114 and the base is put on lockdown. Uh, the Pentagon gets wind of what is happening and uh, the president and um, his cast of characters, including General Buck Turgenson, played by George C. Scott, one of Probably my favorite George C. Scott performance in this, maybe. It's weird to consider that he didn't, like, win an Oscar for this. Yeah. Because it's so, like... I fucking hate Patton with a passion, because I think Patton... Yeah. Patton represents, to me, from what I remember it, I've only seen it once, mm-hmm. represents everything to me that I stand against. In terms... Uh, oh, like, the Patton as a, as a character, or... As a no, person, or in terms of like, it, it doesn't do so much the war profiteering, but it definitely kind of elevates this man. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. A piece of shit, like almost every general is. Um, so maybe that's why I have a trouble with it. Well, it's, it's, not, it's probably a good performance. I just can't personally respond to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, uh, other individuals, including um, the wheelchair-bound Doctor Strangelove, played also by Peter Sellers. Uh, they, they rush to find a solution to this problem as they communicate with the 
USSR ambassador who's also there, mm-hmm. leading to that famous line, which I think is overquoted. Um, you know, and and they talked to the USS Prime Minister. What's the famous line that's overquoted? Well, there's can't fight in here. There's the this is a war. Okay. Yeah. Um, Doctor Strangelove also kind of informs them that if they, you know, fulfill their mission, a doomsday device which is not controlled by men will go off and you know end the world as we know it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they argue kind of back and forth. Um, eventually, you know, the USSR is unsuccessful in uh, taking down the plane, and uh, the bomb is dropped. The famous Slim Pickens riding the bomb down to the earth mm-hmm. as the individuals in the war room have decided that they must go down to the mine shafts with one man <laughs> and ten fertile women to, per, re- to reproduce. Yeah. Uh, Leads to a really great discussion about the mine shaft kind of problem. I mm-hmm. love that. I love that entire dialogue about, you know, how many mine shafts do <laughs> the USSR have, the Soviets have versus uh, the yeah, United yeah. States. And then <laughs> George C. Scott just having this realization about the fact that they're not going to have to deal with monogamy. I just love that part. <laughs> um, the bombs finally drop, and uh, we watch as the world is destroyed to uh, Vera Lynn's real meat. Again. So what's interesting about this is Stanley Kubrick had purchased the rights to Red Alert, as it would be called, um, in, I believe, like right after it came out. So in like uh, 1958, 1959. I don't remember the exact year. Um, He had intended to direct this kind of straight as an action film. that's 1950. I don't know. Did he buy 1950? I can't remember. I don't have it down, written down. Um, because, you know, a uh, popular film of that time in 1959 was Stanley Kramer's On the Beach. Mm. Have you ever seen that one? No, I've heard um, of it, though. <clears throat> you've heard of it? Mm-hmm. So it's basically kind of all star cast of characters. Um, well, George Peck, Ava Gardner, and Fred Astaire, also Anthony Perkins, who probably wasn't, who wasn't super famous yet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're in the months following World War Three, nuclear fallout's happening, they're in Australia, the radiation's coming, they're all given cyanide pills and told they can like commit suicide, and basically it's about the last pockets of humanity dying out. Um, told, you know, straight forward has an arrow. Um, and he had bought this, bought the rights to this, kind of assuming that you know, he was going to be able to make it sort of straight as well, kind of make it into an action sort of thing, you know, following that kind of same lines he did with Killing and Paso Glory. I love how the Stanley Kubrick, like, filmography is filled with these movies that were supposed to get made one way, and then he was just like, fuck. Well, yeah, as he said, um, my idea of doing it as a nightmare comedy came in the early weeks of working on the screenplay. He, like, kept writing drafts of it. Um, I found that in trying to put meat on the bones and to imagine the scenes fully, one had to keep leaving out of it things which were either absurd or paradoxical in order to keep it from being funny. And these things seem close to the heart of the scenes in question. So he eventually just said, you know, fuck it. Let's just do it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, thus became the comedy it was. Uh, and I, that stands to me to the testament of the film. The, the reason this 
for me connects so well is it does in much the same ways that like I had earlier mentioned with Lolita kind of captures that kind of question and, and that he would do later on with like full metal jacket kind of captures that, that question of, of the identity of masculinity. The, and you know, I mm. talked about this full metal jacket, the identity of, of what it means to be a man, what it means to be, uh, you know, somebody with full salient, you know, volatility. Um, combined with the power to mitigate and control the lives of millions of people. Um, you know, that, that great Sterling Hayden performance from, um, you know, playing Jack the Ripper, where he talks about, you know, the, the Rusky, the Russian kind of influence to, you know, sap the bodily fluids of man. Reopen the film with that phallic kind of insemination of the refueling yeah, of yeah. the plane um, set to, I can't remember that, but set to that kind of like romantic music. I can't mm-hmm. remember what the song was. Um, you know, you. Some of the great titles, one of the, some <coughs> of the great titles in, in the history of movies also. Yeah. So Barry Levinson would use them for Men in Black and Adam's Family. God, that guy sucks. <laughs> I don't mind Adam's Family. There's a perfect, there's a <laughs> perfect connection between those two movies and Dr. Strangelove. <laughs> I've always found. We'll have to get to that. Um, <laughs> you know, and leading to, you know, that Buck Turkinson's kind of introduction. Uh, the he's the, the first time we ever see him is we got a scantily clad woman, like which apparently set off kind of the motion picture sensors. Like when they're going on the censorship board, they're like, she can't be wearing that little clothing. Yeah, um, she's almost wearing no clothing. And, and the combination of when he mentions, you know, you could start your own countdown to when I'll be back, you know, mm. kind of combining sexuality once again with uh, math with. Yeah. But no, with war. Um, and, you know, later on riding the nuclear weapon with that great shot kind of face on with the hydrogen bomb, with the kind of coming towards you, his posi- slim Pickens position sure. on it, making it look like he has a gigantic cock um, or, you know, Hayden's weapon, his very heavily phallic gun uh, that needs to be filled, kind of like unleashing his load. You need to, he- you need to help me and, shoot this gun. And, you know, the fact that Mandrake doesn't know how to operate it, has, has yeah. problems with his, with his pants, as he says. Um, you know, it, it really... And with, you know, Tracy Reed playing the only female character in that, like, that's the only... And she's reduced to kind of like just her sexuality. Um, and then that entire discussion of, you know, the 10 women, the one man kind of underscores the fact that these people are at their essence, just adolescents. They are children playing a man's game. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's intriguing because Red Alert in itself, and I read that, I read, read, I read it long ago. It's, it's not good. It reads like garbage Clancy, which is to say all of Tom Clancy's. Bibliography. Um, it it's very strategic and militaristic. Mm-hmm. Um, the refueling is vividly described. Um, there's multiple attacks on the the plane, uh, which is the what is it called? I think it's called the Alabama, <coughs> uh, the Alabama Angel. Um, Stupid Alabama. You know, 
there's multiple attacks on it, and they kind of evade it and whatnot, but multiple parts of the crew are killed. Mm. Uh, besides, you know, just, like, the one attack that happens in um, Dr. Strangelove mm. that does basically nothing. Well, it's a fire. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's played extraordinarily straight. Um, and even in, and in the end, there's even a discussion um, about how, you know, you could... They, they make this treaty of you could destroy Atlantic City, you know, if, if, we destroy, if we accidentally bomb one of them, but they subvert it and the plane crashes without the bomb ever being released. Mm. You know, like trying to get the bomb out happens in the book as well, where you find out the bomb doesn't actually drop, which is actually leads to an interesting thing. Uh, a really shitty thing that happened was that Stanley Kubrick was releasing Dr. Strangelove, realized Failsafe was coming out. Failsafe was so similar um, the Cindy Lee film yeah. was so similar to uh, Strange Love and Red Alert that it led to a lawsuit. Um, and Peter George, the writer of Red Alert, actually got some undisclosed some because the similarities. I mean, it even ends the same way where they destroyed New York and Moscow to kind of like uh. end it. Um, he so he sued <laughs> Failsafe to delay its release. Mm-hmm. So even though Failsafe got better reviewed and was kind of a major critical success. It bombed because mm-hmm. it's kind of considered like a copy, mm-hmm. a, a too serious copy of Dr. Strange. Yeah. Which is a show Stanley Kubrick's kind of a gigantic piece of shit, which we've talked about. Stanley Kubrick was kind of a gigantic piece of shit. Well, this um, stuff was his whole life. <laughs> I mean, his whole identity was wrapped up in these movies. Yes, yeah, it wasn't Sidney Lumet's. So, um, it was the only thing that meant anything to him was these films. So, But, when I came to this film, you know, like I said, I, I came to it in that period of time when the world kind of felt equally as disturbed, equally on edge. Um, yeah. Not to the extent as it was in the Cold War, but I feel as though this is one of the great examples of, of the repetition of history. You know, like the 1920 had a World War One. We got World War Two in 1940. 1960s had the rise of the Cold War, especially with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm-hmm. 1980 had the Iran hostage situation and the Iran Contra affair. 2000 had 9/11, and 2020 had everything we're dealing with now, and almost Iran, but that was luckily resolved quickly. But from a from an American standpoint, what we're dealing with now. Well, I mean, you could draw lines <laughs> from all of those things, and you can really kind of think about the various absurd aspects of how all of those things were yeah how all those things were like transpiring so like you know um um you know world war 1 was just kind of like a they didn't know what they were doing they just the germans were just like we want some of our land back and and we're just going to destroy europe to get some of our land back cuz we're germans they shoot cows um or, you know, World War Two. you know, I just listened to the, well, not just, but like last year, listened to the Malcolm Gladwell book, Talking to Strangers, and, and you know, he has his problems, but he also, he also kind of fairly accurately um, depicts like the relationship between um, Neville Chamberlain and, and Hitler, where Chamberlain really thought he had a good, he had a good read on Hitler and would go to visit him in Germany like a dozen times. And every time he'd come back and be like, this guy, he's, you know, He's not going to do anything. He's just misunderstood and all this other stuff. And, um, you know, right up until the, the, um, 
you know, 2003, we went to war with Iraq where we were just like, no, there's totally weapons of mass destruction. Really? Because there's no evidence of weapons. Of, oh, there's just, there's just weapons of mass destruction everywhere. Okay. You know, that type of stuff. Um, we just, we cycle through as a, as a world, these really bizarre justifications for destroying ourselves. Um, and this movie, I think, kind of confronts that better than like a lot of other movies because it's it's confronting that exact the absurdity of every single one of those things. And 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 that's that's the reason. Like, as I when I saw this, I I came you know I, I became obsessed with it, and it, it made me kind of delve into the history around it, mm-hmm. um, specifically kind of the performances that inspired a lot of it. Um, you look at Merkin Muffley, he's, he's got that impotence mm-hmm. to him. He has that kind of famous conversation um, with the Russian premier. Dimitri. Yeah, Dimitri, where he kind of sounds like an abused, like, not abused wife, but, you know, he kind of has that, like, teeter or to him. And, and, and apparently, um, you know, Seller is kind of based off Adele Stevenson, Adelaide Stevenson. Adele Stevenson. <laughs> Imagine just blending Adele. And Adelaide Stevenson. Awesome. I think <laughs> um, what Adele's doing now. And Adelaide Stevenson at this time is kind of derided for how soft he was being on, you know, in terms of like Soviet diplomacy. Um, this was, you know, the 56 campaign was dealing heavily with the rise of new politics mm-hmm. and the need to run towards a more diplomatic response to the Soviets. Uh, and that was utterly derided. And, you know, despite the fact that Eisenhower, who was a fucking psychopath, um, he was. Eisenhower was a fucking psychopath. Eisenhower would have probably loved if he had went to war. I mean, I give Eisenhower credit for not, uh, you know, going insane with, um, like, the single integrated operational plan of, you know, just kind of, like, doing a massive all-out attack, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but some of the ideas that are presented to Dr. Strangelove that, like, reviewers like, you know, Pauline Kale and... Uh, um, Not Crowder. What the hell is it that reviewer's name? Shitty reviewer. Shitty reviewer. Who would you write for? Uh, I can't remember. Um, Did Paul and Kale like Doctor Strange of? Bosley Crowder. Crowther. So I was thinking of. Uh, she seemed to, but she. So basically, she said um, Doctor Strange was clearly attended as a cautionary movie. It meant to jolt the weight to the dangers of the bomb by showing us the insanity of the course we're pursuing. But artist warnings about war and dangers of total annihilation never tell us how we're supposed to regain control. And Dr. Strange love chortling over madness did not indicate any possibilities for sanity. Um, it's not war that has laughed to scorn, but the possibility of sane action. And so basically she kind of like had this opinion of it of, you know, it does what it sets out to do, but what it sets out to do isn't enough. Well, that's just, I mean, that's like the most Paul and Kale review. No. Not ever, but like it's exactly what you would say. But I do like Bosley Crowther, who's a fucking moron. Bosley Crowther would one hundred percent be the Armand Wright of today. Bosley Crowther would, oh, would absolutely be a Trump guy. I love Armand. When White. virtually everybody turns up stupid or insane, or what is worse, psychopathic, I want to know what the picture proves. Somehow, to me, is as funny as malefic and sick. It's just, you're just like Crowther is such a piece of garbage. Every time I see a Bosley Crowther well, so, review, I'm like, oh man, I'm glad you're dead. I mean, here's the thing about Doctor Strange, though. I guess. I didn't, I, I got to it, 
It was after Clockwork Orange because I went through my Stanley Kubrick class. <coughs> so I, I just, I think Full Metal Jacket was the only Stanley Kubrick I'd seen by this point. Okay. So I was just, I just was bored because it was weird that you said like the pacing was really good because I just, I remember finding the pacing just like, this movie's so tedious and this, it's every scene just takes forever. And I'm not like a Peter Sellers guy. You know what I mean? So all of the Peter Sellers, Peter Sellers, Sellersing all over this movie just was kind of like, I, yeah, okay. That's, what? that's fine. Like the Dr. Strangelove scenes, I was like, I don't care. Like none of this makes any sense. And I guess it's supposed to be funny. And I just don't like find it funny. I found this movie fascinating from like a, a, a visual historical perspective and like this is the first movie you see Stanley Kubrick going full on Stanley Kubrick. Well, I think I think where this... it, you you see the evidence of the modern Kubrick aesthetic here. <laughs> I think this is representative of um it being pivotal for me was that spring of 2003 I was also studying for the US history AP exam. And so I was like really delving deep into like the yeah, and I was delving heavily into it. So I noticed a lot of kind of the hallmarks of what these characters are trying to portray. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think when I saw this, I, I had been doing some studying on like Herman Cain, Con or whatever. Herman Cain, Con. I can't remember. Herman Cain? Herman Con. The pizza sorry. magnet? <laughs> yeah. No, Herman Con, um, who was noted for kind of like the entire doomsday device idea, was sort of his thing mm-hmm. um he had just said like oh at worst we'll have you know like 10 to 20 million deaths or whatnot Which is a but conversation that they have yeah like there, and there's all and there's even the discussion of um i can't remember but the, one of the binders that's a fraud george scott is something about says something in relation to mega deaths and mm-hmm. mega deaths refers to one death uh, a million deaths like the possibilities and that's something that herman khan like would talk about i'm just like the life will go on yeah. You know, sort of thing. And, you know, George e. Scott says that of like 20 to 10 to 20 million people will die, if, you know, depending on how circumstances are. Um, you know, and like Werner von Braun is another kind of caricature of um, Dr. Strangelove, you know, that person who defected from Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, to... Another Tom Lehrer. <laughs> yeah. Another, song another great Tom Lehrer song. Uh, that actually, that song. Oh, I love that song. That song is pretty good. Was, no, he says, there's he amazing says, wordplay in that song. What's it matter? I can't remember the exact lines, but he says, uh, "Where does it matter where the bombs go down?" Or like, "That's not my department." I mean, so yes, yeah, Vernon Braun. Yeah, yeah. Says, and then, but anyway, he talks later about like ask the widows and London and uh, cripples and old cripples yeah. uh, in old London town when talking about, you know, his construction of, like, the, the V-2 bombers. Um, but, you know, that combined with, like, like I said, Adelaide Stevenson and kind of, like, the infertility, as it were, mm-hmm. was it, as it was of the Democratic Party in the late 50s, which would kind of steer the Democratic Party a little, especially like the southern aspects of it, would steer it further to the extreme right, which would luckily no good. be killed. Yeah, wasn't so great. <laughs> um, but that would set the course for, you know, Nixon to rise to power. Like this, this entire like, infertility of the major Democratic Party that pushed towards like the civil rights movement mm-hmm. uh, that was the new political movement, but it, it didn't have 
I mean, Lyndon Johnson was, was, I guess, an okay voice for it. JFK was a pretty... I mean, JFK and... and well, they're J- just... And, and they're complicated voices because Lyndon... They're complicated, but they're both kind of... They both were media-impotent, as it were. Um, like, JFK's handling of the Cuban Missile Crisis publicly doesn't doesn't seem great. And then later, the Bay of Pigs seems like an abject failure. Lyndon Johnson, you know, brings everything back to the center with um, talking more about, you know, domestic policy, but then Vietnam happens and Nixon, you know, uses that strategy of actually going to the left with his discussion of war and like ending the war. Like he had against JFK in 1960 by saying like, Oh, we're not going to proliferate nuclear weapons and we're going to start to de proliferate and we're not going to have that missile. We're going to try to end that you know, the missile gap. Shoot is a good thing. Um, and that would lead to Nixon, which would lead to Trump, you know? Um, no, so no, so, so no you good. See, you see all of this. And just for me, I saw this and it just resonated with me. And that's yeah. maybe like the pacing works for me is because these moments that just attack these men, attack these men who, who are, you know, like, like even, even, you know, Sterling Hayden's kind of Jack the Ripper well, I has love those the, patent this... sort of like elements to him of just like burn it to the ground or, or Eisenhower yeah, yeah, yeah. to an extent and just like he has a person who was you know I don't I don't want to consider myself like a, a great historian of US history like I have a very strong knowledge of history and it's not this part of the time it's mm-hmm. you know 1870 to like 1910 you do so like nothing history, yeah. related to this um, but having been so focused on it in this period of time uh, just because of my studies mm. and then you know, combining it with the the volatility of what was happening in the world around me, it just it just created this perfect melting pot. Well, it's funny and because I oh sorry, just for me, this film kind of is that that resounding voice in the sense of yeah, it, it kind of moves at times. It kind of stays in one place for a while, mm-hmm. maybe too long. I obviously respond to Peter Sellers. John yeah. the Dark was in. The list. Um, this is three, I think, right? You have three Peter Sellers movies between Lolita, yeah. this, and Shot. I, mean, I, I was like, what was the third one? I don't really ever think about Peter Sellers and Lolita. Um, oh, but he's there. I was just like, did I have murder by death somewhere? <laughs> Another movie I love, but it's pretty racist, so I can't have it there. <laughs> um, can't have him playing a Chan character. Um, you know, it kind of formed this perfect storm, and it did give me that kind of voice I needed. It, it resonated with me of like, these it made me realize like fuck the leadership yeah children they don't they know just as little it 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 made me kind of grow to what i am now i think so too i I extremely question i when an authority says something to me my first instance is to disbelieve them until they prove it i was just gonna say this film did this film sets that spark for me I see that. I see that completely. Um, it was like one of the things that I was thinking when I was watching this movie. Is like, this is just like Mario. He wrote it, but like, <laughs> this is just how Mario feels about these people. Like they're all. He just we you know. And I'm 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 weirdly like stupidly optimistic that like this shit isn't happening. Although I have evidence like, <laughs> well, this week that like this stuff is totally well, happening. That's the funny that we're thing all just is... play, politicians are just playing games with people's lives for like 
the bare minimum of reward. You know what I mean? Or or no reward at all except for that they get to feel powerful for a second. Um, well, that's the funny thing is is the people, you know, the criticism of this was that it wasn't realistic. That, you know, like that Paulina Kale said, it, you know, Paulina Kale and, and, you know, Crowther said it was kind of dangerous in a sense um, that it felt like these things couldn't happen at all. And... Um, I forgot who it was, but uh, I'm looking it up right now, but it's not opening because I had it. Eric Schlossner, who wrote um, Command and Conquer, I believe, was the novel he wrote. Command and Control Nuclear Weapons, The Damascus Essence, and Illusion of Safety. Um, and then he also did a documentary uh, for Command and Control. Said, like, a lot of the things that are being mentioned in this. Mm-hmm were very reasonable. Like, that... Sure! The entire idea of mutually assured destruction wasn't really hugely well-spoken at the time, or the doomsday was kind of, like, spoken in in quiet, but um, the entire possibilities of some side person having control of a nuclear weapon without, like, the authorization of the executive branch, while, you know... Well, kind of pushed this side by Eisenhower was offered to Eisenhower as a possibility. Yeah, of course. It I was. mean, these things could you're, have very easily have happened. I mean, if you don't think that that's the case, like you're an idiot. But like, like they didn't, I, they again, didn't think this. And but why? But I mean, the thing I'm an optimist. In, I'm a political optimist, but I just assume that like Donald Trump wakes up every day and like fondles some kind of button that he's just like I could just fucking do it. And like a lot of a lot of brown people will just explode, and then there's forty seven percent of this country will still love me for some reason. You know what I mean? I just assume that that happens. And Michael Mike, Bloomberg is also really excited to hold that button. Well, Mike, there might be enough money in it for him not to be so excited about that. So we'll we'll yeah, see. He'll, he'll just out. focus more on changing the constitution Listen, to Mario, give himself three terms. We may be in a tough position <laughs> in like six months. Or He's so. not going to get the nomination. But let's just assume that there's a possibility we're in a tough position. This is why I say we do. Elect Michael Bloomberg immediately. Like, he gets an office or you wait till, like, he does one fuck up and go, like, high crimes and misdemeanors, impeached, convicted. Here's the thing, though. Then we just put in the VP. Obviously, we don't want to. just laugh at Michael Bloomberg. who's the VP? Who runs with Michael Bloomberg? Bill de Blasio? Bill de Blasio is, is vehemently going against him right now. Oh, so who's well, going to So de Blasio ran counter to him. In 2008, when he was trying to change the New York yeah, City yeah. Charter, um, when he got, oh, what the fuck was his name? Ron Larson? I can't remember his name, but the guy who was originally on like the committee in terms of changing the charter, because the original idea was that the vote would have to go to a referendum of the public. The public wanted a referendum, but Bill, you know... Um, Michael Bloomberg's like, no, the economy and the city of New York are struggling, so we all need third terms. And, you know, the city council voted, I think it was 28 to 22 in favor because they would also have the ability to get additional mm-hmm. terms. It's almost like, but you Mario, know, here's what like we see with in Hungary and Italy, or not Italy, Hungary and India with the um, KJP party. Yeah, I forget what it is. Um, I don't know what you're talking about. But, you know, running this very populist uh, sort of regime yeah um, but we're and, not talking about anything that but bill de blasio ran in opposition to that and actually i'm just sued making him. a joke about and like the idea that like well it's funny is bill de blasio is now like all in on sanders like since bloomberg started rising which is fine but like uh, you know 
It's uh, guy should never have ran for president, here, but, but I like I like I actually like the Blasio. But here's the thing: this is what we're this is we're what we're confronting right now has different words attached to it. You know what I mean? There's not nuclear weapons. There's not doomsday device. There's not any of this stu- other stuff. No, real we're real, doing, real be fine. But no, but, but we don't not even that. But like in terms of like the Doctor Strange thing, this is <coughs> what this movie is about is nothing to do with war, and it has nothing to do with killing people it has to do with decision making yeah exactly and what fuels what feels like the right decision and and uh, who is it the right decision for and what is the cost of that right decision and that's why i feel is like pertinent like and like timeless in this is is decision like the people who factor into the decision making are measuring things in their dick and you look at like donald trump's current tweets where he's saying mini mike and he references something about he said this recently in a tweet he talked about mike pence that way no, uh, Mini Mike. Uh, talk about Mike Pompeo that way. Bloomberg, he said Mini Mike Bloomberg, but he talked about something about when he used to golf with Mike Bloomberg, his club heads were small and he had a he had a short stroke, you know. So Donald Trump gave it this real phallic sort of suggestion, and this is the president of the United States. And you look at you know a lot of these people. You look at even on the other side, Joe Biden, saying, "Listen here, fat," you know, and. The- the pony thing, and yeah, or like, and then I'll yeah, pony boy, and I'll punch you, you know, and like go vote for somebody else. But like this real sort of strength and masculinity, and and this dominant sort of like asserting dominance by the fact that you have a Y chromosome. Yeah, um, I mean it's, I mean it's it's the thing that keeps going and going and going and going. I mean you, I mean where you're supporting one person, I'm supporting another person. My person is My, the person. The person I would want to be president right. is your person. Right, exactly. She can't get she can't win. <laughs> Unfortunately, no. But the person that looks like is has a good chance that we both kind of support, you know. He's, in, you in, support like Warren. I'm a, you support Warren, I'm a Sanders right. guy. I But I support I, if I could uh, snap my fingers, Elizabeth Warren be president right. and Stacey Abrams would be B I don't think I think to that point Bernie Sanders or Cory Booker. Bernie Sanders is still doing the same he's doing the same thing. He's not the same kind of guy. It's not the same kind of messaging. It feels like you're being yelled at. It feels like every up in the air hand thing is telling you to sit down and don't worry about it. And like, I've got something to tell you and you're going to listen to it. Oh, exactly. I'm 100% behind Bernie Sanders if he gets a nomination. But I'm just saying is that even now, the guy that we are kind of hoping will, we're begging to whatever gods we believe in. To be fucking president in November, um, January. Well, just, as soon as he gets elected, like that's it. You know, what I mean, like I don't know what that day after podcast is going to sound like, but it's going to be. I mean, we might not even talk about movies. We might just talk about. We might just look at each other and be like, <coughs> "Fucking, did, <laughs> fucking did it." Um, but even he is part of this thing. You know, what I mean, he's oh, part no, of everything absolutely. that's happened here. I mean, maybe it's not ten to one women versus. To men, but it's something else that he is, he is, uh, he can make the decisions that he's making. He can feel the way that he feels. He can say the things that he's saying based on the idea that he knows he's a white male. And, 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 and you just are, have and, to, you're just going to listen to it. And I forgot who it was, but it says nobody ever runs for office without a bit of sociopathy. There it is. Well, major office. I mean, you can run for state council and not be a sociopath. I think it, but was, I, I I think say, it was in the psychopath I mean, test. I mean, I would. I feel like it's something that John Ronson said in that book, yeah. Really? 
but it, was. Probably, it might not have been, but it sounds like it separately too. from you too. So hmm. it probably wasn't that book. I think it, yeah, I think actually it was. Um, we should get John Ronson on this podcast. But no, it, but uh, like this film kind of shaped those ideas. Yeah. Okay. Now to get to the other issue, the the not Doctor Strange love issue. Oh, his fucking second half of his filmography, starting with two thousand one, and we'll talk about this later. A couple weeks. Just yeah. um, not on, not on my end. Uh, just he he becomes so focused on the image and so focused on this sense of uh, is it necessarily ni- not necessarily nihilism, but so focused on this sense of vacancy in his later films. Vacant spaces. You know, you get a... You see this in Doctor Strangelove. That war room design has a lot of German expressionist aspects. And I do like the fact that Doctor Strangelove himself is based kind of like on Rotwang. Yeah. With, the, with the single glove yeah. and the mechanical hand. Um, you know, Rotwang lost it in the... From Metropolis. Mm-hmm. Lost it in the... Yeah. Um, just in case people don't remember... The last time I went heavily on a political discussion. I feel like we talk about Metropolis all the time. Uh, but later on, you know, there, there's, there's a, like a persistent sort of, even when it's man, it's, it's just the man versus ever overwhelming nature sort mm-hmm. of element in all of his films, even when that's not the precipice for the conflict. It is the person versus kind of this overwhelming ceaseless ending abyss yeah in everything and it's i mean I, I, eyes wide shut doesn't do that as much eyes wide shut kind of well kind of does back and contains it a little but bit but it names the abyss yeah the abyss is love the abyss yeah, exactly. is the relationship between a man and a woman and where does this where does this thing go that we've that we've Reaches its climax, excuse the pun, in climaxing. Yeah, and, and but there's a, a real tangibility to that. There's a real sort of yeah. ability to grasp its emotional essence. Um, Full Metal Jacket, during its first half, also kind of deals with, kind of has this ability to capture kind of the ideas of um, masculinity and, and, you know, like, expressing that masculinity and what is and is not um, truly a man. and then, But then, like, it loses itself in the second half when it becomes kind of this more vacant questioning on, on the, you know, it comes, comes like Conrad, like I said-esque kind of questioning on, on the grappling of cultures while also trying to still deal with the terms of masculinity. Uh-huh. Um, you know... And then, like, 2001 is just a fucking, we'll talk about it, but it just, it's, it's so, I guess, metaphysically opposed to, like, the things I believe in, and, and, and artistically, artist, most artistically and philosophically, Mm. that it comes off as too surface level and and turgid, um, turgidson? And, you know, kind of Clockwork Orange, uh, Clockwork Orange is a little, maybe a little marketing, but suffers from the same sort of, like, omnipresent 
dystopian kind of world that's never kind of named, right. but has this kind of like bigger question so on, here's what on I would the s- humanity of art, but is it really, you can't grasp it in that. And Barry Lyndon, I just don't like. Well, here's what I would say. I'm going to point something out first before I say what I'm going to say. Is that we've, if you, if you add to this list that I've made here, the three, before Lolita, the three major Kubrick films, which are The Killing, Paths of Glory, and Spartacus. Fear and Desire is pretty big. Yeah, but it's not like... It's not like a... It's, it's not... It's just because it's a Cooper movie. But whatever. I mean, f- fine. We are going to have dealt with, on this podcast, every single movie except for Barry Lyndon. Because we did Room 237. That covers The Shining. <coughs> so, you know, you have Lolita, Strange Love, Full Metal Jacket. I'm going to have 2001, Clockwork Orange, The Shining, you know, kind of, mostly, and Eyes Wide Shut. Okay. Stanley Kubrick is obviously not. Take nothing. that, Barry Lyndon. Yeah, take that, Barry Lyndon. Oh, no, I'm not suggesting he's not. No, no, no. I'm not I was saying. I think what you are reacting to is his, and this is a, not to say that you are Armand White, but this is one of the things that Armand White kind of rails against in some of his writing on, on films is that it's, he worships at an altar of aestheticism. And there's, so there's no, you can't, I don't think you can worship aesthetics and also have a non-nihilistic philosophical view of the world. You know what I mean? Because you are giving over philosophy, you're giving over love, you're giving over spirituality, you're giving over everything to what that shit looks like. And sometimes that fails. I think in Barry Lyndon, that's a failure. Because Barry Lyndon is only what it looks like. It doesn't even have a nihilism because I'm not even sure that nihilism existed in that type of... It was just like, what is that word? A, a, a new eye? You know what I mean? That kind of boredom? Yeah. That's a new. What, a new. It's just, that's, just, that's just what it is. And it's got Ryan O'Neill, which is and just Ryan O'Neill, which is naturally a thumbs a down. I think, you know what's funny about Barry Lyndon is like when I confronted... When I first like got my Stanley Kubrick box set and I was I could confront Barry Lyndon like on a real level, I looked at the back and I was like Ryan O'Neill. Like I was you know super into everything that Stanley Kubrick was doing, but I was still I stopped in my tracks like, you cast Ryan O'Neill in a movie? <laughs> Why did you do that? That was that was a huge mistake. Um, and I think that's I. And we'll, we'll talk about this with 2001, where the emptiness of, of human life. Yeah, this is, this is a good, like, intro to, yeah. to the conversation we'll have with 2001. Which I is, think. like, four weeks from now? Three yeah. weeks from now? There's a lot of, a lot of Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. Um, and then we're done with Stanley Kubrick. Then we're done. Um, which is good. That's a good one to end on. Um, the emptiness of human life, I mean, is confronted on a real level there. Again, real level means not like this where it's ideas and it's humans talking, it is the emptiness, the, the absence of, 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 of a human relationship. You know what I mean? Which symbolizes the emptiness of like what it means to be a person. Um, and that whole ending of that movie, which I, you know, we won't, I won't talk too much about here, um, I think confronts that on a real level. I mean, on a level that like terrified me and thrilled me and was just amazing. 
and to the point where like Stanley Kubrick was comfortable saying all the whole galaxy is is human because it's just like teeming with life. Panpsychism. Psychicism. What is that? Well, that's just that consciousness is the universe. Yeah, I'm ready for that. I then that's a thing. I've been actually reading about pan. We, we'll oh, really? Get into, we'll get into that maybe during that yeah. episode. <laughs> maybe that's one of those ones where we just part one of episode twenty eight. 2001 and panpsychicism. Um, oh, yeah. I can't. Well, it depends on how I move things. <laughs> my current 28, I can't really talk about but for I think, an episode. I think my problem, so my problem with like Lolita and Dr. Strangelove and Full Metal Jacket, which I don't respond to as much, is that those seem to be trying to confront direct ideas, like things, actual things. So like the Vietnam War or, you know, the Cold War or this book. Where the things that I really like are not so much confronting um, specific ideas, but the larger idea of what it means to be a person. Well, well like Pabs of Glory, like, but a more grounded anti-war film. And Pabs of Glory, and that's uh, here's my problem with Stanley Kubrick. Is that it's I'm, funny because I love these movies. I love Killing. Yeah. I love Pabs of Glory. I do too. I like Lolita. But you know, I like them because. But I love Strange Love. I like them because they're Stanley Kubrick movies. So Strange Love is still. Is, I don't like Spartacus. I don't like. Spartacus. Well, yeah, because Spartacus was for hire. It feels like a yeah, it's a studio, yeah. right? Um, yeah, and then I think Kirk Douglas asked him to do it because the original director dropped out, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I don't know the history of that. Um, but those movies um, have very specific things in mind, and the movies that I love have less specific things in mind. So even if they're referencing like an, you know, an actual book yeah. like Clockwork Orange. Um, Douglas, Douglas fired Anthony Mann as director and then got Kubrick on board. That's how you do it. Um, we'll fire Lawrence Kazan from the directorship of our life story. Unless he makes a French kiss. Kevin Klein. So which one of... Who does Kevin <coughs> Klein play, you or me? I think, I think he captures the manicism feud a little more. <laughs> so Michael Palin plays you. I, I get William Hurt. Well, that would be awesome. No, we're just going to be just randomly, yeah. That would be awesome. Because William Hurt would capture me. Um, but no, so just finish your thought on that. Sorry. But I think I think I said it a couple of times. There There is definition and then there's non-definition. And the non-definition aspect of Stanley Kubrick's work um, hews really closely to a kind of fatalism about human existence. You know what I mean? And what we're meant to do and what we're capable of. So, you know, 2000 Orange ends like it does. Or 2000, 2001 ends like it does. Clockwork Orange ends like it does, where he's just back to being, you know, Alex. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, the Shining ends with death but also just kind of like nothing like there's no way danny feels good after ha- you yeah, know he's ex- gonna grow up to be you and mcgregor exactly um and eyes wide shut is the same way you know what i mean like they're gonna just they're gonna go backwards and he's gone through this whole thing to kind of realize that like the things that he wishes for himself the things that he thinks about himself are bullshit you know what i mean his is his self is now wrapped up in this relationship with nicole kidman not a bad thing to have yourself wrapped around. You know what I mean? Or to have wrapped around yourself. That's whole puns. All those puns there. I, I rolled my eyes. All those relationship puns. Um, but that's what that movie ends with. You know what I mean? Is that he's, he's gone through two hours of, of craziness 
you know what I mean? What I think Stanley Kubrick thought was really crazy and, and titillating, and everyone else is just kind of like, this is weird. This is uncomfortable. Um, but we've seen all this before. It's yeah, like so it's like, suggestive. And, and, and this, yeah, the excitement of just the, of Nicole Kidman being nude and overtook this, everything. When you show it this way, you know, in the in the mansion scenes, like when you show it this way, like that's not exciting or anything. It's nothing. I mean, I think it originally probably would have been. Yeah, like his original cut probably would have been. Um, but I think that's where, and that's where, and they just put all those shadows. That's where I kind of find myself all the time. Did they that, ever release the original cut of that? I don't know. I'm sure they. Nah, they probably didn't. Not the shadows. I think people stopped caring. Oh yeah, they did. Okay. Yeah, they definitely did. I was not sure. I think that's the. I think that's the cut that's out there now. All right. Okay. Like I don't think you can see. The other one. Good. Because I got it on DVD to do the podcast, and it wasn't. It was an old DVD. You know the ones that have like the single cardboard top and oh. that like plastic shit that folds over. And it's impossible to get out. Yeah. You have to like pressure. You have to Ugh. like bleed. You have to give like, you know, a, a merchantillion pound of flesh <laughs> in or, order to or risk destroying your DVD to yeah. kind of dig it out with your nails. Yeah. But Kubrick is a really interesting figure. Oh, no, absolutely. And we'll we'll, we'll get it. We'll dig. But we'll dig into the cube. It's funny though. Think about it. Think about who your like directors are. Are there movies of his of of or or, or hers that you just are kind of like I don't want to do that. Like there's no Paul Thomas Anderson movies that I'm just like that movie stinks. But there's several Kubrick uh, movies where I'm just like that movie is terrible. The Coen Brothers. Well, the Coen Brothers, yeah. Like they're they're my dudes and I fucking you can can't pay me to watch Intolerable Cruelty. <laughs> um, Which is yeah. I think the only one for then. I stand stand by, Lady Killers, and I think Oh Brother Where Art Thou has value has value from a color from being a oh digital God. color correction film. I fucking hate that movie so much. But what it did for color correction set the stage for a lot of things to follow. Oh yeah, like what? Look at the filmography of like Denis uh, Denis Villeneuve. Villeneuve, like all of his films, like are so heavily color corrected. Can I ask you a question though? Say we don't have the film career of Denis Villeneuve. Do we... Are we really all that sad? Like, we don't get a Prisoners. I like, I like his... I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not a Reddit... I'm not against... I'm not a Redditor kind listen, of... Uh, I'm not against like him. I'm super auteur. Right. I think he's made a bunch of really good movies. I, I, I think Blade Runner's really good. I think Sicario's really good. I think The Arrival's really good. These are good movies. Um, I think he gives. I think he's given us some of the best looking Deacons films. Do we really care about that? Uh, do you care? I don't care. C- come on, do I care? Well, I know you care, but, like, <laughs> but even you admit that twenty forty nine is not like well, Deacons' best work. No, but Sicario is like some of his best sure. work for me. And Sicario is a villain. Of but I think I, you know, if, if and Sicario made my one fifty to one. If all one, it is is Prisoners and Sicario, like I'm fine. If we if if getting rid of Oh Brother Where Art Thou means we also get rid of Prisoners and Sicario, like I'm okay. Well, but you I'm also okay. get but you also get rid of um, Incendies. Incendies is good. It's, it's great. Cares. Enemies okay. That's a, but I'm saying, like, oh, we you know, I just I I actively I, I actively hate Oh Brother Where Art. A lot Where of other films use like. Aspects of color correction. Well, you just brought up that one guy, and I'm just saying, like, if we're taking just in terms of that one guy, I'm mentioning the best example of like 
I don't think you really understand how much I hate Oh Brother Where Art Thou. I don't. We should, we should do a special episode on your hatred of Oh Brother Where Art Thou. I just think it's a. Fun... Oh, I don't like True Grit. That's another Coen Brothers movie I wouldn't want to rewatch. True Grit, yeah. But like, I mean, True Grit. I don't think it's bad. It's just like I watch it and go like, I'd rather be watching Crazy. You know art. why True? Oh yeah. By the way, we're done with Doctor Strange. Yeah. This is the, <laughs> this is the part where you can tune out if you don't care about. You know Mar- why I don't mind Mario True... and Tom's musings over the last five minutes. You know why I don't mind True Grit is because it didn't ask me to take it seriously. It asked me to watch it. As like just a western. It feels like a studio feature. Yeah, it's not like um, no one asked me to watch it in terms of like, oh, it's the Odyssey or oh, <coughs> look at what it's doing or you know, whatever. Like, oh, brother, oh, the soundtrack is one of the great soundtracks in like the history of film. It's like I don't fucking care. Well, it's it's what I, I hate this movie. It's what I expect from Macbeth. <laughs> you know, I let's see it. I want to see it. I want to see it, but I'm not expecting like. I'm not expecting the signature. But have we... Like, and I have a problem with, like, True Grit and, like, Intolerable Cruelty is they don't have that Coen Brothers signature. I'm gonna like, be... even the fucking, like, Crime Wave, that same Raimi movie has, like, the Coen Brothers signature to it. Can I ask you a question, though? Have we moved to the... Have the, have the Coen Brothers made so many films that we no longer really care about the Coen Brothers? Like, we don't expect them to be... Cohen brother. Remember back in like when No Country came out, like just after No Country, and like well, it was actually a good conversation considering a trailer that just came out last week, this past week. Which is what? Well, for French Dispatch, I think this is a a, a director well, who's who's great to mention. Do we really need more of him? But can't you see this movie winning like Best Picture this year? Macbeth? No, French no, Dispatch? no. French Dispatch. Oh, no, I don't know. It's because it looks different. It, no, it doesn't. It, it, it looks. It, you know what it looks saturated. like? It, no, it looks like Isle of Dogs. It looks like his animated films come to life. Is what it looks like. It's yeah. weird. It looks weird. Like, but it also looks exactly like Wes Anderson. I think he's going. I think he's going weirdly darker somehow. Oh, I don't I know. Don't, I don't want to reward this anymore. I think it, well, it is R rated. Yeah, it's gonna be. It, it looks strange. It looks like something new, but it doesn't matter. But my point is that I think for the Coen Brothers, we've kind of moved. To the point culturally, we're just kind of like, that's cool. It's cool that we have it. Like Ballad of Buster Scruggs, it's fine. Yeah, I, I'm glad I that, that they, I'm glad it exists, but like, I don't give a shit anymore. Like, they're really gonna have to blow the roof off of something for me to care about it. And I actually don't. Based on their last bunch of movies, I actually not sure they're interested in blowing the roof off of anything. I think they're just kind like of they making. Oscar and they're happy, right? I think they're just making movies because that's what they do. We make movies. I mean, Inside Lewin Davis, I think was their best attempt at it and then they were just after you know it did what it did they were just like Meh. i mean we're fine we're talking about the the one that's post no country but i think that's was in that's a the making of well, but i also think that was in the making like no cut they were still in the reverberations of no country that they did this and that was their most it's arguably serious band. their you guys most personal movie yeah you guys, everyone knows this already that the serious um, band's and that's one of those there. things that's where there's camps there's there's serious man camps there's people that think that a serious man is like one of the great underrated films in the Especially history now. of movies. Yeah, absolutely. All those articles now are saying that. So yeah. we'll get there. I don't know. Yeah, I guess I'm on the same page. Like I'm more excited for like this new Claire Denis film than I am for the next. Than but that's the thing. Think so that. if they if today if they said you know Claire Denis, what was the other one you mentioned today? No, Martin McDonald. Martin McDonald and Coen Brothers. I'd be like. I don't care. Whatever the Coen brothers do, it's fine. 
you know, yeah, at least like three billboards. Even though it didn't work as well for me as the other two, um, our, our six shooter um, feels like it has this independent voice that's separate from. Like it still has this dialogue, but it's separate. In, and now is that because creation. he's only made three movies, and that's why we yeah. care? And the Coen brothers have made a million movies. Well, you look movies at, and look we don't at care Claire anymore. Denis. Look how many films Claire Denis made. But yes, there's an independent signature to each of them. There, there's no yeah, exactly besides like the aspects of colonialism and and the questions of masculinity or you know like like once again sexuality versus power. Yeah. Um, like each of them have this own unique signature to them. Or like Lynn Ramsey. Like I mean, she's made less films too, but each of those have a unique sort of print, even though there's an underscored line of the volatility of violence. I'm still... ready for that next Lynn Ramsey movie. That's she announced it yet? No, I don't know what it is. It's she made a documentary short in two thousand nineteen, but I didn't see that yet. Um No, whatever yeah. the next narrative feature is gonna be. You and me will be ready for it. Yeah. Well, so. For next week, we're gonna be, I'm gonna be sitting down for four hours. Yeah, we're doing it. A, a heavily nominated film that I said missed my target. Um, I didn't see it, but has been hailed as this and Ashes the Purest White. I think is the two films that have been. Maybe I'll give it Ashes. Try to find Ashes the Purest White as well. Give that a look. Um, okay. But it's a what elephant sitting still? Right? Elephant sitting still. Yeah, a movie that showed up heavily in your pivotal film list. And I will give it a watch. I, I, I would say that it's probably more of a pertinent film to watch than uh, Ready or Not or Child's Play is, which were the movies on my list you didn't see. <laughs> yeah, it's not worth making that distinction. I'm not going to do that. I'm pretty confident. That's fine, but it's not like necessary. Pretty confident that your movie means a little more to the nature of cinema than Ready or Not or Child's Items. Play. Maybe. Maybe not. We'll see. If you made that comment, it'd be shitty. I making that comment. Yeah, but if you come back next week and be like, "I fucking hated that movie," I would. I it think it still I'd... changes the language. It still like did a lot for the language. Of well, film. A, I mean, uh, again, personally, I think it's amazing. <laughs> and if para- again, if Parasite, it's just like anything else. If there's no high life Parasite or Little Women, like an elephant sitting still, kind of dominates my my top ten list. But um, well, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, but. But that's next year for us. Next, yeah, it's 2020. Um, but yeah, that's what we're going to be talking about next week in our number 31s. Wow, I knew this was episode 32 all along, and then I had to look over to see what episode was next been week. been talking for a while now. I apparently don't know how to count down. <laughs> um, do you know you can count, though, Tom? You can count a phone number. Oh, my, what is that? Put my paper away. I had the phone number written on it, Mario. Four seven five seven 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 two four five zero, and you can count on nobody calling us this week. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, or you could tweet us at Film Pivotal. One of these days, I'll find things to tweet about. I probably should have tweeted my thoughts on these new movies being made. I always forget. I have a Twitter, and I just use it to get angry, which I think is what Twitter is used for now. But I just don't angrily respond to people because it's a waste of time. You have your own Twitter account? No, I just use the Pivotal Film Twitter to look at twi- to look at other people's oh. tweets, all revolving around politics and wrestling. You could put that on the Twitter. I'm good. Nobody cares. The pro wrestling thing pissed me off. A, a transgender uh, woman, one a woman's title, and uh, people were nonplussed about it. And I was like, "Go fuck yourselves." Mm. 
you're a man, can't we? And it's like, well, she's not a man. She is a woman. You pieces of shit. Drown um, yourself. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, don't tweet us about that. I mean, unless you agree. We like echo chambers. That's what Twitter's for. <laughs> uh, at Film Pivotal, as I said. Yeah, or go to pivotalfilmpodcast.gmail.com and uh, send us a message about whatever you want. Or go to pivotalfilm.com and you can see a list of the movies on our Pivotal Film list, a list of the beers that we drank, how to subscribe, um, links to our top ten list for the last couple of years. Um, until then, go watch a movie, drink a beer, brown ale. I'll, I'll, we'll try to find another brown. Yeah, we'll I'll try have... to round this February out with some browns. Um, I, I'm sure Town Royal released a brown. There's got to be. There's got to be a brown somewhere. Yeah. Just, just, just a dark IPA. Um, and we will talk to you next week.